Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the good old summertime, in the good old summertime, strolling through the shady lanes with my baby mine, I hold her hand. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that had such success off-Broadway that they just had to transfer and try their luck on the Great White Way. Uh, my guest today is an alum of the pod, friend of the pod, uh, former podcast host himself, and has decided that he's too good for the podcasting world, except for when I blackmail him into coming on to here. Please welcome back our good Judy, James Crichton. Hi. Hi. Uh, James, this is our first time recording in person in three years. Yeah. Crazy. And we have really, this is quite a glow up. It is quite the glow up. Well, you're just talking about my face and body, but also the studio in which we are in. Yes. Gorgeous. Beautiful studio. Uh, one of Daddy Mill Iron. Yes. Uh, there is video component for this episode how much of it will get released who's to say but i'm sure that some of it will come out for um promos bpn is very big on me having video content for them and i'm like i'm busy and i have a face for podcasts uh <laughs> james yes last time you were on we talked about a play it was the history boys and we're talking about another play today mm -hmm. what p are we talking about today we are talking about love valor compassion not love, love valor <laughs> By Terrence, the late, great Terrence McNally. Four-time Tony winner, Terrence McNally. This is uh, one of his Tony wins, his second Tony win, actually, his first for play. Uh, he's He is up there with uh, Tony Kushner as a playwright who won back-to-back -back Tonys for best play. This and the Masterclass was the following year. He had a good 94 to 96. Yeah, I mean, this whole era, I just feel like this early 90s era of theater making was so exciting yeah i was thinking about that while we were well you can get into it but we were watching it today and i was just thinking about like the scope of what people were watching in the early 90s is fascinating to me yeah there well first of all there was there there was a time with broadway when it was like very anemic right like the 80s everyone talks about how like you couldn't get arrested on broadway like it was unless you were one of the mega musicals it was right. really hard to break through 
And then the 90s was the beginning of sort of an optimistic turning point. And it took a minute and it really kind of started with plays and revivals of musicals and then got more so with original musicals. Mm -hmm. But also it's easy for us to look back at the time and be like, oh my God, 1991 Tony Awards, we have Secret Garden and Miss Saigon and Once on This Island and Will Rogers Folly. He's like, what a lineup. But at the time, everyone was like, I don't know. It's not, it's not the best lineup. Yeah. it's uh, You don't know what you got until it's gone. But yeah, there's the plays of the 90s, especially the first half of the 90s. We have both Angels in America's, this masterclass, uh, so, so many other interesting ones and ones that like no one really talks about anymore like the season of love valor of love sasha valor compassion this was up against um the play indiscretions oh starring uh jude law kathleen turner cynthia nixon roger reese and eileen atkins wow yeah it was like trying to be sexy but also classy i don't know much about it it's like a lot of love affairs it was like aspects of love Hmm. meets closer is how I very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And then having our say, which was based off of a book that I know nothing about. And then what was the fourth one? I I don't know. Well, I'm looking this up because I'm good at my job. Yeah, well, I'm very curious. This is something that I don't have a tremendous amount of. Arcadia by Tom Stern. Yeah, which is not. That was one. So okay, I would imagine at the beginning of this season because Arcadia. And I know this because of the Carousel connection. Arcadia <laughs> went into the Beaumont after Carousel at Lincoln Center Theater, and was very much like it's the next Tom Stoppard, and was transferring from London. And everyone's like, "Oh, this is this is going to be like the big thing." Thing, yeah, it's going to be like the big play of the year. And Love, Valor, Compassion came out off Broadway um, with Manhattan Theater Club at their underground theater, where um, for you musical theater freaks out there, that's where the Julia Murney Wild Party was. For anyone who's actually living in the city and goes to see plays, it's where Prayer for the French Republic just was. It's uh, underground at City Center. And I'm not sure like what the buzz on it was originally, because he was a respected writer. Right. You know, but uh, I don't think he'd had a play play on Broadway in a while. His last Broadway work was Kiss of the Spider Woman, I'm pretty sure um that makes sense yeah and that kind of revived him as in his career as like being prestigious again because there was a period in the late 80s early 90s where just like everything he did except for maybe like frankie and johnny and the claire de lune just wasn't really like hitting yeah it wasn't hitting wasn't landing and i feel like the early 90s was sort of a, a revival for him and starting with spider woman and then into this and i mean in a way with Nathan Lane and Steven Spinella, those were probably like the biggest theater names in that cast at the time. Spinella was just coming off of Angels. Angels. And jo- this was technically the second thing Joe Mantello what? directed in New York. Uh, he had a play starring Faith Prince called What's Wrong With This Picture. And if you want to know what that was like, just know that the poster is up at Joe Allen. Really? Oh, yeah. See, I don't... I I feel like a hundred years ago, I watched this amazing youtube series mm-hmm. or like a youtube video of like a round table discussion with terence mcnally joe mantello and all of these people that were shaping mm-hmm. lynn meadow i think it was everybody that was sort of involved yeah and i remember them sort of saying that like i forget exactly what the story was maybe you know but something happened with terence mcnally and joe mantello and he was kind of like something clicked and i knew he was the only person who could like stage this mm-hmm. and what a choice yeah well he, joe Joe's career is interesting because he was an actor and aspiring director, and he made his Broadway debut at like 30, 31 as Lewis in Angels in America. 
And I remember when Steven Spinella won, I say remember, like I was watching it when it aired, but I've watched tons of research. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm like, I'm that stupid idiot. Same. Same. Who go, well, I love to watch the old Tony ceremonies. I also miss, I also miss the Tony ceremonies. Doing plays. Doing plays. And also like that took place in a Broadway theater. Yeah. When it was, you had 1600 seats. So it was, yeah, it was just the community. It was not anyone who wanted to buy a ticket. So you really got a sense of what mm. the community was behind and who they were behind based off of like who won and what won. So like I'll never forget watching the 1990 Tonys and Tyne Daly wins for Gypsy and just like every gay in the mezzanine is losing their shit. Yeah. And that is how you know that like her performance was beloved even then. Yeah. And so when like Angels swept its first year, like, you know, the audience is going insane. And Spinella wins for featured actor. And he would win again the following year for lead. But for featured, he makes a very big point to thank Joe because that's, especially in part one, the prior uh, Lewis relationship, like one does not work without the other. And he describes Mantello as like a brilliant director. And I don't think any, first of all, no one in New York knew who Mantello was until Angels came out anyway. And he was an actor for that. So for Spinella to like in a scene say, like, say like he's a director and a brilliant one, it's like, oh, I'm sure there were some people in the room being like, huh, maybe I do want one of like the actors from the hottest show in town to direct my reading and this other thing. Mm. And I don't know exactly how his directing career in New York launched from there, but in terms of like mainstream, what I can find on like IBDB and whatnot, uh, when he and Spinella left Angels, he directed this off this Broadway play with Faith Prince around the same time he was directing the off-Broadway production of Love, Valor, Compassion. Okay. And as the Faith Prince production bombed that December, Love, Valor, Compassion blew up off-Broadway. So I think it's very fortunate of About that timing. Yeah, because Broadway's got a short memory and like you're only as good as the last thing he did. Mm. Um, I don't know how we got to this, but... Joe. Joe. It's all about the Joe. Oh, but yeah. So he was not like a named director and Spinella and Nathan were like, two biggest names in the cast so i think like maybe there might have been buzz from that but i don't think this was like expected to be anything or if it was it would you know be a successful run and that would be it but it moved to broadway almost immediately like within it's a heidi chronicles hamilton kind of mm. uh turnover where it was like it closed beginning of january and then like started previews at the end of that month yeah broadway. well i mean I know we keep trying to probably like move on, but like I yeah. uh, stop acting brand new. You've been on this podcast before. There's structure has gone out the window along with my sanity and my tolerance for anyone's bullshit. Go right ahead. True. Cheers. Well, what I was going to say is it's so interesting to me. Like I think, you know, I was born in the early nineties and I am still watching it. Re we can discuss our journeys, what led us to here, but I read the play a few years ago after I saw the inheritance on Broadway and then in the pandemic, I had like a reading of it with a couple of friends mm -hmm. and just like on Zoom and it was wonderful. And then I trusted sort of my two readings of it and then watched it today with you. Yes, we we went to the Lincoln Center Library and watched it. Next to each other and side by side monitors. It and was very hot. It, <laughs> and also a little hot, but then it got cold at the end. Oh, but we um but we watched it today and I was so we'll get there. But um what I was going to say is I was blown away sitting there watching it just being like, when I think of the early 90s, I know where we are today as a theater community. And you, yeah. although you do mention like Tiny Daily, the gays like rising and cheering, but like just thinking about the appetite for non-theater people, mm -hmm. like in the New York City business people, people, tourists, it's fascinating to me that there is this slew of 
very gay plays Mm -hmm. that are sort of winning all the top awards and are the hottest plays like in the city it's it's just i i guess it struck me in watching joe mantello's staging of the play that it was very contemporary and Mm -hmm. it felt very modern and uh i was just amazed that that was happening off broadway in 1994 yeah it's we'll talk as we as we talk about the play itself and the production that we watched which Terrence himself says in the notes for the script he considers to be definitive that production and and i think he's not wrong when you think about that the play was successful it ran maybe not like for years and years but it ran for about seven eight months recouped its investment very quickly and i'll talk about that as well for a little bit one best play had a movie version with the majority of the original cast also directed by joe but it hasn't come back to broadway or off broadway in any way Mm. And Terrence has had other works come back. Masterclass has come back. Frankie and Johnny's had yeah. two Broadway revivals. Uh, he had that one play, It's Only a Play, that right. no one really liked but did well because of Nathan and Matthew. And this has not. And I think it's partly because it's a product of its time, but also because that... No, I'm going to say that. Product of its time, not just in terms of what it's about, but how it approaches what it's about. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm not trying to be condescending to it. Just there's a lot about everything that's that's made in theater, right, is essentially a time capsule of the time that it's made in based off of how it approaches subject matter, how it's written, things like that. And some works magically can stay evergreen just by some weird kind of kismet mm. and having certain creatives over the years come back to it and like have an amazing approach not always and sometimes it does take like the right person to come back to it 30 years later to find the right uh way into it you know i always say with like with carousel carousel was considered dead in the water until nick heitner was like actually this is kind of tennessee williams set to music which was the perfect approach everyone thought south pacific was dead in the water till uh bartlett share was like i think this is a good script what if we got actors and everyone's like oh shit um or like Boeing Boeing was considered like this huge flop in the 60s. And Matthew Warchers was like, what if we just leaned into how ridiculous it was? And what if I brought in Mark Rylance? And we're like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's just taking the next Joe Mantello to come along and like give this energy. But this is also one of the, for lack of a nicer term, one of the AIDS plays. Uh, AIDS plays. Uh, in the fact, and I wrote this down in my notes where it's like, Yet again, an early 90s, late 80s play where, like, AIDS is the thing. It's, like, it's the big elephant in the room. And it's the thing It's the thing that makes the play pivot from comedy to series. And it's all about that. And it's so easy in 2023 now to look at that and be like, God, yeah, no, we get it. But it, it, we were still very much in the thick of it. It had gotten better, but it hadn't gotten much better. Like, it was not necessarily a death sentence anymore, but also, like, there was no cure And it took like a decade of fighting to even get to that point. So there was still a lot of anger and a lot of exhaustion. And you can definitely see that with Nathan Lane's performance in the play. It's more for me when like Steven Spinella as Perry or um, John Glover as, I guess, James, (laughs) when he's playing James, where it's like it becomes sort of like the, and now I am Laura Linney and this is Masterpiece Theater. And we will now talk about the thing. And you know it's important because I'm speaking in a monotone. And that's where 
I'm like, oh yeah, this is early nineties attitude of this. Um, you know, like whereas Larry Kramer with the normal heart written like literally in the thick of it of um the rise up movement is like that play is nothing but anger. And Angels in America is anger with humor attached, and Love Valor Compassion is mostly humor with sadness attached. And then I feel like once we get to the end of the nineties, it just becomes like sad. And then all of our gay plays for the early two thousands are just sad. Yeah. And we're still kind of sad. Like speaking of the inheritance, so much weekend in the country stuff, the inheritance loves to make you sad. It really is like us gays, man. It made me very sad. Yeah. We don't have to talk about the inheritance. We we won't. But, but it, yeah, speaking made... of an ensemble of gays. Right. Yeah. It's interesting just to track, like, you know, and I know that there was another I forget, is it a Terrence McNally play that Second Stage did? Um there's a second play that I'm trying to think about that um I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but there's another one that I had wanted to read. But there's this yeah, there's there's a lot of plays about gay men identifying with each other but i think the other reason that it feels dated mm-hmm. is the lack of representation well yeah so and we you know that was very apparent today watching it yes as well it's a bunch of affluent white men mostly yes so oh james this is one of my favorite topics to talk about hit me with it uh well i talked about this in the heidi chronicles episode with uh our other dear guest jesse field who is, she would describe herself as well as, you know, very out and proud, lesbianic playwright and lyricist. Yeah. And yeah, we, she and the, she and I get along like fucking, you know, Compton and Green. But we, we were kind of talking about this. I think, yeah, I think it was Heidi Chronicles. And I don't know why specifically other than the fact that we're both gay, because it had nothing to do with the play. But we, the queer community is so fascinating to me, especially the queer community in the arts. Because we mostly, our initial reaction now to works about us, in, in the 80s and 90s was like, oh my god, gobble it up. We're like, we're going to show up in droves. We want mm-hmm. this thing to be successful. And and even if it's not very good, like we're going we're gonna to show up for it. We're going to make sure that it you know runs and it's going to win that fucking Tony. And we're going to cheer when Terrence wins that award. Which was also like a major career thing for him as well. He'd been around for so long and that was his first win for best play. And everyone was like, he did it. But now especially with our younger friends our younger benders as i would call them uh it's because we've had quite a bit of representation now in many different mediums which i'm grateful for now it's about whether it accurately reflects your personal story and if it doesn't then garbage mama cancel set fire to it and it takes all of us as a community like a solid three or four years until the thing comes out to then look at it as a piece of the tapestry of our representation um you know like when these are bad examples because i don't think all these things are good but like just i remember when love simon came out or call me by your name came out and call me by name is beautiful but still a lot of backlash was mostly just like that's not what it's like to be gay like that's not what it's like to be gay for For you you. um and it doesn't and it doesn't have to represent your story to still be worthwhile of course then the frustration is more like well we keep on having like five stories a year and four out of the five are about affluent prominent gay men with beautiful homes and whatnot and and homes in the country yeah and like and most of them aren't very good anyway like i don't know if you saw any of the uncoupling series that neil patrick harris did for netflix recently 
No. Trixie and Katya did a We Like to Watch with it. That was more interesting than the show itself. Basically, Neil Patrick Harris and Tuck Watkins break up after like 25 years of being together. They're the Perry Arthur couple. Uh Uh, Or rather, say Tuck Watkins breaks up with Neil Patrick Harris. And Neil Patrick Harris is like, I haven't been gay single since the 90s. What do I do? And so he has to like learn about Grindr and all this stuff and stony things. But like they're all, him and all of his friends, very wealthy very successful like beautiful homes all this stuff and it's that's all fine i consider that like my nancy myers movie porn with your with your beautiful kitchen but they also like tried to make it um like we're just like everyone else we also have issues in the way of love i'm like yes but also just allow yourself to be real estate porn as well like acknowledge the fact that so much of your life is easy and you can and like and the problems you have while like yes we all can connect to them do not act like it's the Hindenburg. We all go through emotions. They're all, and they're all real. And also like all the, all the relationship stuff that Neil Patrick Harris, Harris deals with after he uncouples from Tuck Watkins is like, oh, this guy I'm trying to hook up with is too big. Oh, this other guy who I'm starting to date, I don't know, he gets along with my friends too well and it's kind of creepy. It's like things are like, that's not, that's sitcom stuff and you're trying to make a statement. Mm. And yeah. I need to watch this. Don't! I think I do. Just watch Trixie and Katya watching it. That's more worth it. Well, also, on that note, sitcom making a statement, have you... Are you familiar with Torch Song Trilogy? Yes, very much so. So I did go to... That was the last time I went to the library, was to watch Torch Song. The original. Yeah, the original. Like, the four-hour version. The one that was, like, off-Broadway. Yes, they filmed it when it was at the Actors Playhouse, uh, Mm -hmm. because that was another one that had a very quick turnaround. They were there for, like, four months and then moved to Broadway, like, that July. Okay. And they filmed it at the Actors Playhouse because Matthew Broderick wasn't going to transfer with it to Broadway. He was going to mm. do a movie. And the producers really wanted Matthew's performance preserved. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Harvey talks about this in his book. Yeah, I was going to say, I read this in the book. Yeah, he's like, I was dealing with a mm-hmm. virus with my throat. So he, like, And you can tell when you're watching, you're like, oh, geez, is he going to make it through the performance? Oh, wow. He does, but still. Um, but yeah, it's the whole four-hour thing. Porch Song is interesting because it is a bit sitcom-y. Or at least Act 3 is very sitcom-y. But also, like has a very powerful statement to make and they do it in a really good way because they don't punish you with the statements they're making they're they come from a very real emotional place and your guard is down because you've been laughing for the last hour and it's not like gotcha why were you laughing but rather like no behind all the jokes like i am in pain mm. and that is beautiful as opposed to something like Uncoupling, where Neil Patrick Harris is like i look like neil patrick harris in my five million dollar apartment and i can't catch a break I don't know. Maybe I just have something against. Really want to watch it. Maybe I have something against Neil. I don't know. He was a good. Um, uh, what's his face? I was going to say John Benjamin Hickey, but that's Love, Valor, Compassion. Uh, um, in Assassins, what's his name? The one who shoots Kennedy. Lee Harvey. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with me? I yeah, it's like I knew it was. A th- I'm. I'm fucking dumb. I can name. Famously, all- I can't remember any of the names in Assassins and who does what, but that came to me. Yes. Yes. Well, Sarah Jane Moore. Moore. Yes. She's the KFC bucket. And then Squeaky squeaky From. From. Yeah. She's unworthy of the love. Right. The only connection we have of this to the- Joe Mantello. Joe Mantello. The connection. There we go. So back to Love, Valor, Compassion. Yeah. No, you were going to say something. No, but it's, again, it's tangential. But I was just going to say, like, about Joe Mantello, it's so interesting that he, in a way, his directing- this play with so much music and the use of music is so big throughout it and dance and dance it's fascinating to me that um because i think it was 
was a man of no importance before wicked yes it was God, I'm such a freak. Man of No Importance was the spring Same of season, 03. Right? No. Oh. It's spring of 03. Wicked went out of town summer of 03. So he was. And then came back Halloween. Yes. Because I also know this. Michelle Federer, who played Nessa Rose, was right. in the ensemble of Man of No Importance. No. And I, I'm convinced she got Nessa Rose. Not, not just because she was wonderful, but because she also had the working relationship with Joe. Oh, my God. So when she went in for it, he was like, oh, she's a wonderful actress. She's understudying Sally in Man of No Importance. Let's have her play Nessa Rose. I did not know that. Mm hmm. Well, she also went to stage for Manor, and I remember when I was there, she came to like do a Q and A and talked uh-huh. about that audition process. And... and it's important when you're like in one of those programs, you know the history. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's resumes. No, but like I just think it's like what a blueprint of like this play, and then other plays in mm-hmm. Angels in America is so enormous in its scope. Not that he directed it, but just being in it. Yeah. And directing well and he's but... he has said he did a because he did a conversation with george c wolf and he was like i learned so much from you he's like i always like kind of adhere to you when i'm directing as well the best should. learns from the best but it's absolutely this, but it's this thing it's amazing then that like a man of no importance again very small musical mm-hmm. leads the way to wicked which is this huge world yeah and then we go into like assassins and then we well that could probably take me out like i feel like there's so much yeah so t- i think take me out it's t- all happening around yeah take me out was the same season as man of no importance because take me out was another was another off broadway to broadway transfer there was a period in the early 2000s where like joe mantello was just knocking him out with his big old dick and it like amazing work just dropping trout and being like and what of it and take me out was his first tony uh for best director of and play. then the next year next year he wins best director of a musical for Assassins. Assassins. yeah I, at least i'm pretty sure that's the order yeah, because Assassins is David oh, is Dennis O'Hare. He could not have been in the yeah. same shows at the same time. Uh, yeah, it was Take Me Out, director of a play the previous year, and then Assassins the following year. Same, and Assassins was the same season as Wicked. So based and Assassins was supposed to be in two thousand one, and then they canceled right. because of nine eleven. That I remember reading yes. about. And so, past. yes, and then they pushed it back two years. So like he went from Take Me Out off Broadway transferring to Broadway to Man of No Importance, which was supposed to transfer. Like that was. Not like there were contracts signed, but it was one of those things with that creative team, Roger Reese, how like everyone was like, sure, Broadway's coming. Um, Miss Sally Murphy, if you're nasty. So like, of course, it was like everyone was like, we're waiting. We're waiting. Sally's going to get that Tony on one day. And that didn't happen. And he went right into Wicked. Well, he had been doing Wicked, but Wicked was right after that, which, as I understand, he hated. He hated that whole experience. Um, Really? Oh, yeah. I'm not really spilling tea here. Joe is an actor's director, right? It's like it's the it's having the chance to work with the actors and like really shaping the story. And you know, directors should be collaborative, but also you are steering the ship. And when you are being undermined by others, it's it's no longer a collaboration. And basically, what happened was out of town. It was a real power struggle between him and the writers. And the show that Joe wanted is not the show that we got. The show that Joe wanted was a little closer to the book, a little weirder, a little more human-based. There, Stephen Schwartz talks about this whole thing with Wicked of, like, they had this whole funeral scene for Dr. Dillamond and out of town. Because Dillamond also, like, does die in the book and, like, for reals, he's not for play-play like he does in the musical. Wow. And there's a whole thing about the funeral and how Elphaba sings at the funeral. And so they made that happen in the stage show originally. The stage show was a lot weirder and darker. And out of town you know it was a bit of a mess and they were like trying to streamline it like the show is running three plus hours we got to cut it down and they kept like one of the major things they wanted to cut was the funeral sequence and joe mantella kept saying no and finally they were just like joe why do you want to cut it and he's like it's the first time alphabet wears black 
until then she's always wearing other colors and it, like it's a sign of why dr dillaman matters to her and the respect she has from him like she yeah, only knows. yeah right, i just had it too just like that like she will wear black for the rest of the time now that he's dead like it's her way of like connecting with what's what's important to her and her fight for like the animal rights and whatnot and Stephen Schwartz and Winnie Holzman heard that, and their response was, no one gives a flying fuck why she's wearing black. She just has to be wearing black at some point. And to their credit, they were right because people are stupid. But Joe Mantello was also beautifully right, artistically speaking. Mm-hmm. And when that moment happened, I was like, okay, they, like, Winnie Holzman and Stephen Schwartz basically locked themselves up for three months after out of town, did their changes to the show, wrote Dancing Through Life and all the other things, and now it's the Wicked that we all know and some of us love. or And some of us love some of it. but. That like that is why that show is not like a great experience for him. But the beauty of that is he was able to channel all that pro- probably channel all that frustration into Assassins, which was his second Tony, and which he does a gorgeous job with. My God, oh my God, yes. This, we should change the title of this episode to just Joe Mantello. <laughs> Joe Joe Mantello, please come in and sit with us. I mean, he's absolutely one of my idols, but we can, we can move on. My my two favorite working directors on Broadway right now are Joe and George C. Wolf. Of course. Yeah. I would add Nick Heidner, but he hasn't done anything on Broadway since One Man, Two Governors. He keeps on just staying in London like the goddamn Brit that he is. Really, I'd like to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus. But so. <laughs> Passion. Right, says, please let's go wait, back. So, how play. did you first know about this play? How did it come into your life? Um, I think I've always, you know, musicals were my way in. Yeah, always. And so, for me, I think I was a big fan of as a kid. I loved Ragtime. Mm-hmm. I loved um, so the Spider Woman. Like, I loved all the musicals that he had a part of or part in listen this is why you and i are cut from the same cloth spencer glass as well hi spencer we talked about this when he was on the pod many years ago like we all wanted to play melina and kiss other spider woman well and, and at like at the age of 11 but like beyond that for me what it's always been about and my students at the the camp that the theater camp that i teach at at used Dan, like they are all i don't know if some of them just say it because they're being nice but like i always try to direct the show that like the composers were not maybe wasn't their most successful attempt commercially. Mm-hmm. Like I did Allegra a few years ago for Rodgers and Hammerstein. I did like, um, um, I really want to do Dear World. <laughs> like I want to do like sure. weird shows. You are buzz. Yeah. I did Anyone Can Whistle. Okay. That, that's less weird. I love Anyone Can Whistle, but regardless. So I always sort of look down the path of where can I, where can I look? And so with Terrence McNally, that led to, you know, 
studying his plays and watching those amazing clips yeah. of Audrey McDonald and Master. Like, do you know, just all of those, it just opened my world to him. And so this came probably a, maybe like around, I was actually very strange and uh, much to Ali Gordon's chagrin. I only saw Angels in America, the HBO um, version three years maybe after I graduated college. And I think I read Love, Valor, Compassion shortly after that. I never had read it in college. Wait, why are we bringing up Ellie Gordon? Because she loves Angels in America. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, yes. It's her Al- favorite show. Al- Al- yes. Yes. Play. That, yes, that and Amadeus are why she and I became friends in high school, because we were the only kids our age who were like, Angels! So Angels three years after... Angels in America. Yeah, three years after college, and then... Yeah, Love because America. I never, for some reason... And I had two different college experiences in play analysis classes, and neither focused on Angels in America. So, yeah, I didn't read it until we didn't do anything on Angels when I was in college either. Honestly, I feel like it's just such a huge piece. It's like, huge. You, that's something you've got to, like, spend a semester well, on. Well, but interestingly enough, my brother, who's in finance and is five years younger than me, went to Villanova and he took a philosophy class. And they tackled Angels in America for months. As well they should. They read the script. They talked about the play. They, like, watched the HBO version. Yeah. I was like... What? We didn't well, do any of that. Well, I, well, when you're going for, to theater school and you got to cover all the theater. There's a lot like, to do. It's like, yeah, we can't spend four months on Angels. Come on. We have a lot to do. Yeah. Like, Language of the Stage, we talked about it. We definitely talked. I remember we talked about it. But, yeah, I think Courtney O'Connor was like, yeah, we're, we're not covering Angels because that's going to take us most of the semester. She's like, we've got six plays to get through. Seven plays to get through. Um, but it's what led me to yes. Love, Isle of Compassion. Yes. There is a whole slew of gay works out there that all of them are important and worthwhile in some way, even if not all of them hold up. If some of them are half good or not even very good. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, we have to look at Torch Song Trilogy. We have to look at Fifth of July, Boys in the Band, Angels in America, The Normal Heart, Love, Isle of Compassion, Jeffrey, uh, The Inheritance, uh, Choir Boy, um, God, what's where are some others I'm not thinking of right now? I know now. My I'm trying to think. Yeah, I'm trying to think about the all, all the gays. You got a really big. You got a the, the right ones. Though. Yeah, I feel like you got like. Well, a big one that we will be discussing later on this series is going to be significant other. Oh, which is not epic in terms of size, like no. angels. It does not cover AIDS like half of these plays. But I think at this moment, mm-hmm. it is probably the best representation of being a millennial gay. Mm-hmm uh it's just there are some truths about that play that like still make me cry just thinking about i left and sobbed into the street yeah when i saw i I can't talk about it too much just because i want to save it for that yeah episode, but yeah i saw it off broadway same with my best friend cried and then saw it on broadway a year later and had to run out of the th- i remember they were collecting for broadway cares and i like pushed rebecca nomi jones out of the way because i was sobbing so hard. i was like no i cannot but i also remember um intermission of significant other and i'll tell the story again for that episode but i she my best friend was on the other side of the theater and so i was sitting next to two random straight girls and the way that act one ends do you remember how act one ends significant other at the bachelorette party yes act one ends and the two girls next to me are like oh my god this play is so hilarious and i turned to them and i went this play is devastating yeah it 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 freaked me out yeah um but yeah no you're 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 right yeah but it's it's but um God, I I lost the plot so many times already. I had so much I already I wanted to say and I didn't. Uh, love, love, compassion. Yeah, go back. Yeah, love, love, compassion. I don't even know anymore. Love, love, compassion. What's it about? Who's she about? What's her life? What's her story? What's the plot? 
I've loved I've loved the lower compassion. Well, the thing that's also struck me that was interesting today in watching it is that it feels very much. I recently read a book called um, Our Country Friends by Gary Steingart, uh, which he actually wrote during the pandemic, and it is about the pandemic and like a home in the country. Yeah, and it feels. Love, Valor, Compassion feels so Chekhovian, sort of like in its scope. Like you're kind of waiting to try to figure out like what's the what's the turn. But it's all moving so quickly that it, it almost feels – I think the other reason that I felt that it – what is it about is it's kind of just about friendship. And I think how friendship can be – I feel like I'm winding because I think it's about a lot of different things, but it's also about nothing. And it's. Yeah, it's well, yeah, it's about queer relationships. and yes. friendships. Yeah. The basic premise is eight gay men over one summer uh, at the country home of one of them, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of what goes down. There's like one major inciting incident mm-hmm. that it does. But the thing is, like, it doesn't even do anything. That major incident. It's like. And that's something that's something that I feel like the play kind of I can't tell if the play thinks that it, that that incident does something or if it's tricking you into thinking that it's going to do something because it ultimately doesn't do much. I feel like it might be the latter that it's tricking you. Yeah, I I would hope so. I would hope that Terrence was smart enough about that. Um, basically, so it's it's when the play begins, there are three couples. There's Arthur and Perry, the fourteen year together. Not legally married, but technically married. They wear their wedding rings, and they're the most like have a beautiful apartment together in life. The most they they are the couples that when queer people were fighting for marriage rights, kept being like, "We're just like you. Look at our two gays it's here." Like, no, you're not. Yeah, like, but like the they are the ones that are most easily swallowable to straight straight. Yeah. yeah, like one's a lawyer, one's an accountant. They wear. They never wear short shorts. They, like they their suspenders are on yes. white button down shirts. They're they're relatively Arthur is more uh, straight passing than Perry is, but Perry's not over the top. Uh, then we have uh, Gregory and Bobby, mm-hmm. which is a May December romance. They've been together for four years. Gregory is a dancer, a choreographer, supposedly very successful. Has his own company, uh, very well known in the dance world. Successful enough to own this country home. This with like a beautiful studio. Yeah, beautiful studio off of the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're meant to believe that he's sort of like the white elephant Illy. I, 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 that's what I'm gathering. Because uh, he's not from like the ballet modern dance world. Mm-hmm. He's not Broadway. And Bobby is his much younger boyfriend, okay, yeah. partner boyfriend, uh, who is blind. And they make a point of that in the play of, you know, what does it say about a man that, you know, he chooses a partner who can never see his work? Uh but I think I don't know if that's meant to be a statement or not. And then John, who's a British composer who had a big flop of a musical and became it ran for thirteen shows, fourteen shows, or something. Yeah, some yeah, fewer than fifteen for sure. Flopped in flopped in the West End, flopped on Broadway, and is bitter and jaded. He has a twin brother who lives in the UK and does costumes for the National Theatre, who is the polar opposite of him. Uh, obviously played by the same actor, and John shows up with a young dancer. Ramon. Ramon. Yep. And then there's Buzz, played by Nathan Lane, who is just sort of like the outlier. Me. All of us. Music, <laughs> musical theater obsessed. Like, right, you, right. y'all think I'm musical theater obsessed. I cannot tell you the number of performances Wildcat ran for. Buzz can. Buzz knows. Buzz knows. Buzz knows the number of performances of all these shows. And Buzz also has custom shirts made of, like, bumblebees mm-hmm. and other hilarious, like, one-liners. Yes. 
and has musical theater nightmares and dreams, which I do not have. No, me neither. His, like one of his opening things, he's like, I was having a musical theater nightmare. They were going to revive the king and I with Tommy Toon and Elaine Stritch. Which would have been a nightmare. She Fun fact, Elaine Stritch. Well, Elaine, did the, yeah. Did the king say, at one point. Tommy Toon as the king would have been. I would have paid to see it. <laughs> I would have paid to see it. It recently came out that... um. The public was in the 90s was going to try to do a production of Kiss Me Kate with Kevin Klein and Patti LaPone. That that was going to become Kevin Klein and Mary uh, Elizabeth Master Antonio. And pa- Kevin and Patti on paper sound amazing, but I can I do not think Patti would have been good in Kiss Me Kate at all. It's just one of those things where I'm like, why? Why? And then there was like talk that it might be Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters. And I'm like, why? Oh, wow. Sometimes people like, I don't know, bonkers ideas are bonkers until like oh it magically works out right mm. you know like time daily and gypsy is one of those things where everyone thought like why are, you must be joking and then it was wonderful right um but i think we all can agree tommy tune and elaine stritch and the king and i no bueno the inciting incident is that is there one more character no no that's it because yeah, john and james are the right dual roles uh the inciting incident is ramon is the newest member of the crew because he's sort of john's boy of the week They've only been together for three weeks, even though John is clearly infatuated with Ramon. Who wouldn't be? He's very attractive. And Ramon is, like, immediately attracted to Bobby. Bobby is very beautiful, of course. And in the middle of the night, Ramon basically not attacks. They want to make it seem like it was this mutual thing, that they have this connection. But, like, I don't know. Bobby went down to the kitchen to get a glass of milk in the middle of the night. And Ramon was standing there waiting for him. I don't know why he assumed Bobby would come down. I don't know, but yeah. he just stood there waiting for him. And then basically, like, the two hook up. Right away. Yeah. And that's the quote-unquote inciting incident. But the whole play happens, it doesn't happen out of order. They start with the inciting incident, and then they flash back to the beginning of the summer. And then we get um, Memorial Day, 4th of July, of July. Labor, Day. Labor Day. Yeah, all of that one summer. And the play also plays around with the fact that while it's happening before us, everyone's also narrating in time and from the future as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like direct address to the audience. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which is something that I didn't even realize uh, my play connected to with this play. Oh. oh, yeah. At the time when I was writing my play, I was like, this is really Torch Song Trilogy meets Heidi Chronicles with like a sprinkling of significant other. And then watching this with you today, I was like, oh, and it's and, and Love, Valor, Compassion. The monologues for sure. Of people just like, it's not as consistent, like, whereas Love, Valor, Compassion, like, scenes will be happening and someone will literally come out of the scene to talk to the audience. Yeah. And the actors, the characters will interact with each other outside of the scenes with each other. And uh, it's almost as if they are reciting the events of that summer to a stenographer. And mm. they're all kind of, like, correcting each other. Don't say that about yourself. Don't put that on the record. And and so that's sort of how it how it goes. Mine is... I don't know. I don't I haven't necessarily made up the rules of how the fourth oh. wall breaks happen. It is actually really, yeah. It does feel almost like as if they're speaking to somebody. Like take this down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there was an interesting moment too where there. I, I don't want to give. It's like giving anything away. It's first of all the play is the play is twenty seven years old. Right. Which right. remind me of that when we get to the epilogue. But yeah, twenty seven years old, and we do spoilers anyway. So. Well, I was just gonna say like there's a moment where many of the the men in the group come out and they do like a dance number together yeah and steven spinella's character as perry perry yeah starts applauding for them but the audience 
didn't start applauding and so i was like i wonder if he's gonna and then he immediately just like turned to the audience and was like hello yeah applaud like it's so it was so collaborative in that regard that it was almost as if the audience were i lingered when i was talking before about the notion of like friendship and like the show is about i think it's about friendship because there's two things that happen in the play that i thought were beautiful one is this direct address to the audience that i just feel that they feel such a closeness to the audience that they can turn to them and they're going to always be on their side and i found that to be really moving and the other thing, again, since we're, although I don't know what, I don't want to jump all the way to the end of the play, but it, there's it. this thing where, you know, Nathan Lane's character is, has AIDS yes. and he is sort of contemplating or hypothesizing about what his future will look like or be like. And he grabs Perry, his oldest friend, and he kind of just grabs his hand and is like, I want you to be there when I go. Mm-hmm. And like, that just struck me as. You know, my grandmother recently passed away and I learned so much throughout that process of of death about the intimacy of it mm-hmm. and just about like we spoke to like there was like a hospice was sending like a therapist to the house and and she was saying to us, you know, you may want to do something, but like your loved one may want you to be not in the room yeah. when it happens. Like sometimes people will say they want one thing, but then they don't know what they want. And I just, it just struck me as so. Um, the character of Buzz just struck me as so interesting, uh, again, as beautifully played by Nathan Lane, because it's this character who is such a, like, performer, and everything is so heightened, and he's always performing, but then the moments of great intimacy were very um, telling, and I just thought that of all the people that he wanted to be there, it was Perry, yeah, like, by his side, and asking for that was just such a moment of um, intimacy that I felt like, wow, this play is about Sometimes the bonds of friendship can be, yeah, everything. Something that was interesting to me. So yeah, the the play makes it very clear by the end of the night how everyone knows each other. Yes, Perry and Buzz were roommates. They were roommates when Perry meets Arthur, and so Arthur becomes Buzz's friend. And Perry and Arthur meet the same night that Buzz meets John, the British composer who wrote the musical that flopped. And you know they always say like Perry and Arthur lasted, Buzz and John did not. Mm. But then I also, that makes me wonder then, because they go, oh, John would eventually become our friend Gregory's rehearsal pianist. And I, mm. but th- they don't say it at the time. They just say, oh, he's Gregory's rehearsal pianist. So you believe at the beginning of the play that they only know John through Gregory. But I think actually Gregory became the rehearsal pianist because of them. Mm. Like when he, when his career as a writer stopped going anywhere, like, well, while you work on your next piece, why don't you play piano for our friend greg and then buzz and john didn't last john unfortunately still was in their friendship group because of gregory right uh which may be a reason why perry hates john so much uh mm-hmm. like we you know we did that asshole a favor and now we can't get rid of him even though he like is no longer dating my best friend right like why am i and he's just you know what's the word uh james is james is the light john is the dark, the dark. Yeah. yeah and just... they yeah. And they talk about that. But speaking of addressing to the audience and sort of of that, like, acknowledging the audience, another thing that they do is Gregory, um, played by Stephen Bogardus. Is that how you say his name? Bogardus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stephen Bogardus, the choreographer, he keeps a journal. He also has a stutter and he and he keeps a journal. And John makes it a point to always read the journal because he has no boundaries and he thinks that it's his right he's like if i'm gonna be out here in the middle of nowhere with you assholes i'm gonna read gregory's diary and i think part of 
Gregory knows that John does it, so probably writes some stuff in there, hoping John's going to read it, and then it'll sink in. Mm. And he talks sort of very candidly about all the friends, not in any negative way, like not in a nasty way, just in a very lightly honest way. And when we get towards the end of the play and John has the diary again, there's sort of like a beat from the audience where they laugh, where it's like, after all we've been through and all the, like this emotional uh, journey you've gone through, John, like you're still going to read the diary. And John Glitter just looks out of the audience with a face of like, yeah, of course I'm going to still read the diary. I'm still me. Right. And it's, 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 it, yeah, it's, it's like they are reenacting that summer for an audience after having lived through it as well as, you know, and like coming from a script that they gave a stenographer the year before of, you know, typing it all out, like a group therapy situation. Yeah. And then we get to the epilogue where I'm like, well, now we're in time, are we? Right. Yeah. But that's, we'll, we'll put a pin in her. Uh, yeah. So of which character resonated with you the most? Oof. Not necessarily one you connected with the most, but one that resonated the most. Well, Buzz is, like, the obvious answer, just in the sense that, like, I'm actually not very, like, Buzz in real life, aside from yeah the musical theater facts. The one who I feel, like, resonated with me the most in a way that, like, disturbs me is, and I don't have the same amount of vitriol, but I think Perry in some ways. Yeah. And I don't know if that's Steven Spinella mm-hmm. or if it's the writing. Um, but something about Perry trying to live but can't quite join the other. Yeah. I've always sort of inherently felt a little bit in my own life, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Again, I don't feel the hatred that sometimes I think his character bottles up and then expounds, but there were moments just tracking through him and how he spoke with the audience that I was like, huh. Yeah. With Perry, and maybe it is Spinella's performance, but I never truly got like, hate hate from perry it, it's clear that he's got a lot of rage in him yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and, and I, that's something that most of them have mm-hmm. like you see most of all of us all of us sure. yeah oh, absolutely us. it's you know why toxic positivity is stupid because you have like those are natural emotions that you have right and you got to find a way to release it and acknowledge mm-hmm. it otherwise you're just bottling it up and it comes out in inopportune moments like the dinner scene in act one where people just start saying really nasty shit Perry is very smart and Perry has no patience. And right. uh some another thing that the play kind of deals with not fully but acknowledges is infidelity in general because Bobby does cheat on Gregory that one night and you know possibly again. Uh, yeah. It's unclear exactly. Uh-huh. Uh and eventually tells Gregory and you know they work through it until eventually they don't. And Perry and Arthur Arthur had cheated on Perry years ago. The details, unclear. When exactly it happened, unclear. But it happened. He told Perry. And they have worked on it and moved on from it. And Arthur says, you know, like, it's, we're terrific. It's just not the same anymore. Mm. And you you watch them and, like, in a weird way, they are great. You know, like, they hold each other's hands. Like, yeah. they're, they're there for each other. They're honest, all this stuff. And, you know, Perry 
isn't punishing Arthur in any way. It's, there's no, he never brings it up, but you do sometimes see like that there's like every now and then it's sort of like op, uh, opposite magnets where it's like they hover around each other, but they don't fully connect. Yeah. Which is, I say that as, you know, if that's not always the case. They're usually pretty connected. Yeah. But every now and then it's that moment where it's like they disassemble and we're led to believe that that is caused by the affair from how many ever years ago. But with uh, Perry, I always got the idea that he was very smart, very impatient, and probably cynical. And so, like, when they're having that talk at the table... Yeah. I mean, when I say cynical, I mean, obviously he's cynical, but... Like, in part of the combination of it all. Because there there's a scene towards the end of Act 1. It's their first night up in the house, I think. And, you know, it's all going fine. And they're talking about the food and all this other stuff. And the ballet uh, thing that Gregory wants to do for this AIDS benefit. Oh, I'm going to have six men who aren't really dancers dress up in tutus and do the Swan Lake, famous Swan Lake dance at Carnegie Hall. And, you know, Perry hates drag. He finds it kind of gross and he again it's it's the inner homophobia uh toxic misogyny of just yeah. like i'm i may be gay but i'm a man right mm-hmm. and, I'm, and i will adhere to we're the... trying to hold on to that yes yeah the concept of a man is what i'm gonna hold on to right because you know i'm not i, I you know i just got to be this kind of pillar of myself but they start talking and maybe the... even the frustration of like in his relationship, Arthur is the one who's seen as the butch one, and Arthur yeah. comments on it. But Arthur is free enough to dress up and participate yeah. in a way that Perry so staunchly expresses reservations. Arthur's willing to skinny dip. Arthur's willing to put on right. a tutu. He won't take off all of his clothes. It's yeah. just half. So I think we've sort of landed on why. Is this your answer, too? Uh, is Perry, Perry? my answer? Uh I'm still not entirely sure. I asked you hoping to buy myself time. Oh, because uh, but it seems like you're also working. Through... I, I think the Perry thing surprised me, but like the yeah. more that we unpack it, I'm kind of like, oh boy. Well, I think honestly, I am most like Perry. I don't think I'm as angry as Perry. Me neither. But I like. I feel like I'm a Perry with a buzz rising. Because Same. yeah, because overall, I am not of a buzz energy. You know, no. I'm. I'm th- there was a time when I was, and I've. I don't know if I've ever really discussed it. Just like we all put on masks, right? And of any kind of sure. Name. We were, we won't name names. We were talking about the certain uh, bub from my life who, you know, definitely puts on a very specific energy for people that I know in person is not who he is. We all have this, and so I know. Remember, like in high school and in college, it was definitely like the I'm on, I'm on, I'm on. I have the quip here. I have this here. And it's exhausting and it's and it's fun to kind of live life and be energetic and be the center of attention from time to time. But it is an act. No one is like that all the time. And and Nathan Lane does a really good job of sort of really good job of. Yeah, it's like he's on because when he's not on, he's just violently. Correct. Um, And that becomes so clear in the play. He's so good at swiftly like turning on it there's also just like let's shout out two things really quickly about Nathan Lane in the show. First of all, the irony of. And I wonder if it was purposeful on uh-huh. behalf of Terrence McNally to give him a shout out as Nathan Lane. Um, not Nathan Lane. Um, Nathan Detroit. Oh, and Guys and Dolls? Sue me. That's yeah, from Guys, Guys and Dolls. And then I think they even talk about funny thing happened on the way to the forum for a moment. Yeah. Forum which would be was... foreshadowing. Yes. But like just some yeah, it's... interesting progressions that I saw. It's possible. I'm also convinced that he wrote that role for Nathan. Because uh, hmm. they had worked together... I'm almost positive they'd worked together at that point. 
I mean, Nathan had done Guys and Dolls already, yes. And then I feel like... Am I making this up? I could have sworn that he and Nathan had done something together and that this was something he wrote written for him. I don't know. But, I have no idea, but if that's the case, it makes utter sense. Yeah. Um, but with the Perry stuff, I just want to say, like... Yeah. And so Buzz, you know, obviously the act, and that's, like, why the Buzz Rising is me, just the musical theater stuff and, and having that put upon energy sometimes, but I'm not like that all the time. Right. Harry... Perry can sort of just sort of see the hypocrisy of everything and everyone all the time. Even, and so that the whole dinner table scene when Nathan or Nathan, when Buzz is talking about like, I have this photo on my desk of, of the starving kid in Africa and the vulture is about to eat him. And Perry just like he Buzz is saying this because he's an empathetic, compassionate person. Yeah. And he's like, it sickens me and it motivates me to do stuff. And Perry basically just like, what are you doing, though? What are any of us doing? We say we care and we do. We look at the photo and we feel bad. He's like, but then we go on with our white American lives and we don't directly address the issue of that photo. We should not go out there and we don't try to solve hunger in Africa. We don't try to, like, find the actual cure. Buzz, they have a running, not joke, but like a running theme of Buzz how is always saying that he's single-handedly going to find the cure for AIDS. Mm. But they never talk about what exactly it is he intends to do. It's just it's just sort of his Don Quixote chasing the windmill dream, but unclear what he's actually doing about it. Well, and I think he works at the clinic. He works at the clinic, yes, but but they never address exactly what that is. He's also a costume designer. He he basically has two jobs. He works at the clinic and who knows if he actually gets paid for it or how much he actually gets paid. And then he does costumes for Gregory's dance company, which I would assume is more his income. That was actually a part of the thing that broke my heart watching it though, because like it actually didn't even really, I think Perry is the one who introduces that narrative about like, he thinks he's going to change yeah. the world with, but it's like, I, I found then that there was a real moment of tenderness between the two of them after like when he said it, because like Nathan doesn't, you know, buzz doesn't turn to the audience and like, you know, giggle or anything like it is a heartfelt moment of like i do feel that like the work that i'm doing there is more than any of you were doing and i am going to help like yeah. i found it to be very like well so uh i bring so i bring up the parry thing just because that i do have that mentality sometimes when i see performative action yes when there was that thing in lockdown during when you know after george floyd with the black lives matter movement like having a major revisal which is great but so many there was that trend on Instagram where you would tag ten people on your stories of like to show that you were against like police brutality or something like that, and like and it was the idea was to like show the chain of just how many people in the world actually care and support you. Oh no, that's green one. It doesn't. I don't remember that one. Um, I do because I had two different people tag me, yeah. and I it was it it, it was very short lived. It was like a four day, blah, blah, and I. I do not have a major platform in any way, but I did use what little platform I had to be like, hey, guys, this is not actually doing anything. It's not addressing any change. This is performative. You were just, you know, showing your small group of people that you care. You're in an echo chamber. It's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to donate to these five organizations. If you can think of any other ones that are worth donating to, share them. Let me know. Here, I'm like, here are the five that I'm donating to. Here are the five things that I'm doing. And like, it's not enough. It's never enough. But it's more than just being like, I feel bad. Tag mm. me. Which I think is what Perry is trying to say. But Perry is too bitter and too jaded to actually be like, what can we do? 
like what like what can we do to help instead what he says is like what are actually any of us really doing and you get a foreshadow of that earlier at the beginning of the play when everyone's addressing the audience and saying this happens this happens and you mention how uh when perry's telling the audience he's like giving introductions to everybody he goes oh buzz thinks he's gonna single-handedly find the cure nathan lane as buzz he's sort of like at the back of the stage and he pops up he goes it sounds silly when you say it that way right and then perry goes back to him he's like i know i'm sorry and like steven spinella gives nathan lane this like little friendly kiss on the cheek and that's all you need to see of like what their dynamic is who they are as people and who they are in their friendship and like perry realizes in that moment that he is being cynical about his close friend's dream Mm -hmm. and whether it's realistic or not Mm -hmm. is beside the point it matters to his friend yes and he goes you know what you're right i did say i'm glad that that registered it was such a like beautiful moment yeah for me and it was so early it's very early well it's 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 the writing it's the acting it's the directing because you read the script it doesn't say that that's what perry does he just says uh i'm pretty sure when you read the script there's not a ton of stage direction no uh there's a bit there's definitely i have it here too i realize i had a pdf on my phone yeah. but it um Mc, mcnally is very weird about what he chooses to be specific about with stage directions and emotions and some of them i don't think are accurate uh like there's one he has i don't i can't remember at all there's one he has that's like it's not something you can act it was like something you write in a novel about how a character is feeling and he just had in parentheses and like how do you stage that how do you act that mm. and then sometimes it'll be like oh this is happening while that's going on but a lot of times he leaves it up to the actors um sorry you were gonna say it let me find this thing with buzz and perry no i'm looking as well but i um oh no it, no it is in here um buzz it sounds ridiculous when you say it like that perry i know i'm sorry he kisses buzz on the head goes back to his own bed picks up a pillow and hugs it close to him so that is in the stage direction so i want to apologize to terrence for that <laughs> but the way that they do it on stage it's it's re i remember reading it i did not get that i didn't it did not connect with me in the same way that it did when we watched it which is also how it should be with plays yeah and terrence says that in his notes he's like plays should be watched not read well yeah i mean that goes back to joe mantello for a second too but then i saw something in one of my notes that i wanted to just say but just just that like he the way that this is and for anybody who hasn't gone to the library and watched it like you should go to lincoln center and, and watch it because it is so wonderful to read and it's so fun like i loved reading it in quarantine with like a group of, of friends on zoom like it was wonderful to hear it yeah um because his stuff is so poetic and it is its own sense of music it, it is very musical and so it makes a lot of sense that music was was added and music is referred to so often mm-hmm. um oh which my segue thing by the way was it was just so fascinating to me that they chose to end the second act with Bewitched, Bothered, Bothered and Bewildered, yep, yep, yep. which quite literally at its core is about an affluent woman yeah. who is, you know, infatuated with a younger man mm-hmm. and sort of like uses all of these like, um, you know, she's showing her intelligence by the words that she's using to describe this affair. Yeah. And it just struck me as so interesting. Like here were a lot of these men um again affluent and like in their country home and they have beautiful apartments and lives in the city um and they're sort of like singing about or dance they were all like waltzing to Mm -hmm. it's just such an interesting visual and i just feel like joe mantello's 
way that he brought the story to life is so clear that I understand why this is considered like a singular or definitive production production because it's almost as if it's like I can't see it any other way well two things this is the second play we've covered that has bewitched in it oh that is in the history boys it is in the history boys it's that's the the lesson yeah well fascinating how that song can take on so many different meanings because in context of pal joey it's more sexual than it is love yeah you know it's vera is not um a very lovey-dovey person she's pretty ice cold uh and when she's singing about joey it's more like she's not being like i'm in love she's like it's like wow like sex is fun again uh and then it kind of took on a more romantic atmosphere with jazz standards and whatnot and has a very romantic context in love valor compassion because it ends act two with the dancing and we have the new couple of buzz and james john's much nicer brother and And they also make allusions to Sondheim with a weekend weekend in the country yep. and like they're waltzing like with the dim lights like it, I feel like all of it is a beautiful homage to so many different yeah there's so many things, things yeah, so many things in there the third thing with history boys it's interesting that bewitched is used as sort of like mm. a longing unrequited love so how one song can take on different facets is great um regarding this being a definitive production yeah so James when we went to go see this, I told you what the library informed me when I made the reservation yeah. about the viewing of this, which was what was the restriction? which was that we are not allowed to rewind. Yes, or we fast are forward. not allowed to fast forward, and we are not allowed to restart it. Yes, basically. So the way that Lincoln Center Library works with their videos, Toft, Toft, yes, yeah, uh, Theater of Film and uh, yeah, I think it's Theater of Film and Television Archive. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, it is, uh, you know, you get a DVD for each act of whatever it is you're watching. And you, they try to limit you to three hours because, you know, if it's busy, they need to have turnover. But, like, I've never been there when it's been really busy. We were there. It was pretty dead. And if we were not watching what we were watching, we probably could have been there for, like, seven hours and no one would have said boo. Mm-mm. And I've, like, I've done Rewind and I've, like, repeated a disc before. I've, I've spent a solid, like, five hours before on a two-hour piece. Uh, so the fact that we could only watch it straight through, no repeating, no whatever, was very interesting. Do you know why that is for this piece in particular? I feel like you were starting to say it, but I want you to tell me the real, real reason. I'm going to give you the real, real. Give me the so, real, real reason. Do you remember Ooh. there was a lawsuit from the director choreographer of Town? Uh, on two different regional productions of Year in Town around like 2006-2007. Do you recall? No. There became a major... So there is now... uh, We've had a major uh, step forward with copywriting of staging in theater. Because for the longest time, there really wasn't. Like, uh, there were estates that could control certain things. And choreography was always easier to control than other... uh, Than, like, direction. But it's why, like... Jerome Robbins' estate has, like, all the control of West Side Story's original choreography, Michael Bennett with Chorus Line. That's not the case with a lot of stuff. Right. Um, but is it the same thing that, like, when you license a show, for instance? Like, it yeah. has to say, like, original choreography by Agnes DeMille. Sometimes. Oklahoma, or, like, something. Sometimes. And I, I'm not – it's – but what happened was there was a production, a major regional production of Love, Valor, Compassion that was too 
the detail. No. The original production. Everything. Things that are not in the script. Like, there's there is no mention of Gregory's dancing in the script. That was something that Joe Mantello added because he thought it was very important to show Gregory's artistic process. Well, like, because there's a lot of describing people like Gregory yeah. was in the studio doing this while we were doing that. And the way that the set is designed, there's a scrim at the back that you don't realize is a scrim until I think the end of act one, mm. when you see Gregory dancing behind it, that's him in the studio. Right. And I'm, I, Mantello tried to sue and I don't think he I could because oh, he didn't no. have like grounds at the time. But what he was able to do, because how it happened was the dude went to Lincoln Center Library and just like watched it nine times and wrote it all down so i don't know if there's a limit on how many times you can watch this production i'm sure like in six months we could go again they usually they used to say like you're one and done i think they might have been lenient on that but wow you can't sit there and like rewind yeah and... yeah like you're watching it and you know whatever notes you take that day are the notes you take um and that's it and i think i'm i'm convinced that's the reason why that video has that specific restriction that's wild isn't it wild I know, but it is, it's kind of sad now, too, though, because there's so many things. It's not sad because, like, I like, of course, I like to watch them. But, like, you know, yeah. there's so many things that are online. Yeah. Just on YouTube now. Yeah. Well, th that restriction was put into place, you know, obviously before bootleg culture came about. And also, but bootlegs don't capture everything. No. Even, even the best they ones. They zoom, so, like, yeah. you can't get a sense of the picture. Yeah. There are maybe 10 bootlegs out there that I would consider pretty perfect in the sense that they make sure to capture what's most important and it's not too like scuttlebutty. Uh but they tend those tend to come from people involved with the show. Oh which interesting. I don't like, to talk about. like there's a bootleg of the Los Angeles production of Ruthless and it's towards the end of the run. It might even be the final performance. And it's I'm almost positive it's the director or it's somebody involved on the production team who filmed it. Because all the zooms that happen happen at the exact right moments. They, there's no like I get over here now. Like they know exactly where to go. Oh, interesting. They know exactly where to go. I just remember like I feel like I remember, but again, I feel like a dinosaur when I like I remember, but like I, I literally guy. remember YouTube becoming like a thing mm -hmm. no, in like too. 2005 shoes oh my god shoes that and but i remember that every day there'd be a new bootleg of wicked yeah it was yeah also just like a lot of audio i remember uh oh yeah that's more what i mean yeah but yeah that's what was going on with love that is so interesting Isn't yeah because it? it's really it is it is so not often yeah the thing you were talking about this earlier with like the friendship camaraderie mm. What I like about this play in terms of, and you know, yes, there was a lot of homage and references to stuff, but like the banter of queer friendship. And I know, you know, we don't like to, you know, put an umbrella over each demographic, but I do think that this is true of the queer community. Um, there is a very specific energy and and vocabulary to intimate queer friendships and it's a certain kind of banter referencing of things mm. like inside jokes that are like references to movie quotes or theater quotes or whatever um and then there's also like a bit of a jest to things like almost a slightly like a neg if that makes sense mm -hmm. uh the way i describe it is like my love language with my friends and they all know this now is bitch i'm a bitch but only if i really consider you a friend because there is the understanding of that safety net that no matter what I say, you know that I love you. And if I meant any of this, I wouldn't say it. 
I'm saying it not because it's true, but because it's funny. Yeah. It's the it's for the sake of the punchline. And we see this in Angels. We see this in Love, Valor, Compassion. Like, all that stuff at the dinner table when they're fucking with each other and saying, like, you know, bitchy things to each other about, about oh, you have no hair. And, yes. oh, yeah. And, oh, you're not the size you say you are. You were pushing 40 when Chorus Line was still on Broadway. Things like that. Like, that's... Those are bitchy things to say but they are with the level of trust of you know that i love you and yeah. if i actually meant this we wouldn't be friends yeah i'm saying this because i know you well enough to know what your like sore spots are and i'm gonna jab you just enough it's like it's the reading challenge of drag race you know it's like i'm taking a kernel of truth i'm expanding it for comedic sake yeah and i know it's gonna make you laugh because you know i love you well the other thing too that i guess to dip back to the old conversation for two seconds is with Buzz. Yeah. I think I am actually kind of like him in the sense that so many of my musical theater puns or references go unnoticed. What thousand percent? I've had so like when that happens and he just lets it sit for a second, yeah. I'm always like, mm-hmm. I said to everyone in my life, I have pop culture Tourette's. You do not have to acknowledge what I'm referencing. But just let it happen. Let it happen. Right. You know? Don't ask who. Don't ask who. Don't ask what. Don't ask where. Just let it be. Let it be. Well, no. You know, everyone goes to the Beatles. Um, I go to let there be. Pierce. Let there be. Let there be. What? what, what, what? Winter. Water. Water. No, rain, rain. Rain. What's the first one he says? Let there be... Um, uh, morning. Let there be. Oh wait, we're, we're singing different songs. What are you singing? Oh, I see. Chil- my brain went. To- I'm doing Children of Eden. I went to Once on This Island. Gross. I go to the show that's never been on Broadway. You've been. You went to the show that's been on Broadway twice. You mainstream fuck. God, sing Move. it again from Children of Eden. Um, let there be. Let there be morning. Let there be oh. evening day. Let there be. And then there's the stupid children's chorus. They sound beautiful. I just hate children. Perry. Yeah, I don't I I don't know Children of Eden as much as well as I should. There is half of that score is gorgeous. I really like much of the music. It's also Stephen Schwartz. So some of them lyrics are choice. Well, it's interesting too. Now we're just... Who cares? Yeah. Now we're just living Love Valley. Now we're just living. Right. So maybe that is sort of the best way that we can pay homage to the play. Yeah. Um, Talking to the mic whore. Oh, am I hiding from it? No, you're no, you're good. You're good. You're good. What I was just going to say about that show is, um, Stephen Schwartz is, I watched the most incredible interview the other day with him and Janine Tesori. And okay, Janine Tesori was talking to him and she was like, she said something that blew my mind open about him. And I was like, whoa. She was like so many of us composers no. who um, write are often not acknowledged or meet the moment yeah. that we're in. So many of us write something and then years later people are like, whoa, that was brilliant. She was like, you've struck lightning in a bottle so many times mm-hmm. and you've always known how to meet the moment as it's happening. Mm-hmm. She was like, you did it with Godspell. You did it with Pippin. You did it with Wicked. She was like, you constantly know how to like just match the moment. And I was like, wait, he does. Because like, if you think about like Sondheim, mm-hmm. think about early Janine story with like Violet and like, they're not like yeah. get all. Schwartz 
I would say, I wouldn't say he always meets the moment. He he has three very big moments where he where that absolutely happens, and that is Godspell Pippin Wicked. What we are not acknowledging between Pippin and Wicked is the you know thirty years in between where he did a lot of great stuff, but not stuff that. Well, it also turned to film, I guess. Yeah, but we also have working. Uh, he did the lyrics for Rags, Rags. and the, I would argue that the lyrics for Rags are not great. I just love Rags. But Strauss's music is incredible. Oh my god. Bum, 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 it's an amazing bum, show. Bum, is it an amazing show or is it an amazing music, James? To be honest, I don't know how to answer it. There you go. Because I did a production of it when I was a child at a community theater. And I, it is one of my favorite shows I've ever been in. To this day, if somebody was like, what are, you, what are some of your favorite shows you've ever been in rags? Fiorello. No. Not even Tom Bosley would say that he has a soft spot for Fiorello. I loved it. These are the shows that I did. You're the again. one. You're the one person who loves Fiorello. Yeah. I love Fiorello. Don Draper famously didn't love Fiorello in Mad Men. In Mad Men? Yeah. Mad Weiner made it a point did to say- Did he prefer to see Sound of Music? I don't know that. that year. Who knows what the hell that toxic man wanted. But Matt Weiner made it a point to say on television, Fiorello, what? I love Fiorello. I'm dead serious. <laughs> but yeah, this is what I mean, though, about my taste. But it led me to, it led me to all of this, honestly, like, because I feel like we're nearing, like, James, like, wrap it up. But like, no, keep going, keep going. No, but like, all of it in some way did lead me to love Valor Compassion. And it's interesting that I found this play so much later than so many other things. Yeah. Because in a way, it does feel like all of those things that have been bustling around in my head were acknowledged in the play. Yeah. Well, like, I had a greater appreciation for this play because of the life that I've lived up until yeah. seeing it. Love, it. Love, love Valor Compassion is a very solid argument for Write What You Know. Because mm. it does feel like a lot of the things written in there are conversations McNally had with friends. Sure. McNally, obviously, of course, had a country home and friends with country homes and all that stuff. And, I mean, there's so much optimism in so many of his plays, even when there's anger to it. It's why, like, his, like, big comedies I don't think are as successful because I just don't think he's... Maybe he is, but his writing just isn't quite sinister enough. Mm for satirical comedies to really bite like he could never write for veep he could write for west wing that's i think that's the way i would describe it with him um even something like frankie and johnny it's all about like opening yourself up to love and and not allowing passion to pass you by and even all the cynicism of love valor compassion it's i mean it's cynicism in the sense of like Smart people seeing hypocrisy, but not none of it felt weighty to me, if that makes sense. Hmm. They're, watching it with you today, I found that the third act, which is definitely meant to sort of be like the serious act, was my least favorite. It felt a little try-hard to me. There were a lot of like big monologue moments. John Glover gets his big monologue moment with his twin brother, uh, which I remember uh, saying to you during Acts 1 and 2, I was like, there's, a, there's this little turntable at the front of the stage they haven't used it yet and then they use it next three yeah for like the one moment i was like that thing could have been on wheels it would have been fine you didn't need, you did not need what they called the lazy susan but like john glover gets his moment then nathan lane gets his moment steven spinella gets like three moments there's one in the canoe with him and um john benjamin hickey just like oh everyone like gets their beat and the ending 
I know I'm sure it was very moving to a lot of people. It 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 didn't do it for me, especially as we watch more works kind of like satirize these kind of earnest moments. There's the 30 Rock episode where Kelsey Grammer does a one-man version of Abe Lincoln that he's just improvising on the spot to distract everyone while like Jenna and Kenneth do a cover-up. And then they show you the end of the play at the end of the show and he, as he gets shot in the head and then he like he gets shot and he dies and he stands up and he goes, I'm a ghost now. She's <laughs> like, and I have one last thing to say as a ghost. And the ending of the play where they each describe how they go, all I could think of was, I'm a ghost now. And maybe that's because shows like 30 Rock have ruined storytelling but beats like that for me. But also, I'm not sure. It just kind of felt a little out of left field not super earned the play is not about the they death is mentioned in the sense that buzz and james who both have aids are on borrowed time like they are not doing great james is super not doing great and you know by 1994 1995 even if it wasn't an immediate death sentence it was more likely that you would die in some point um but the play was not about death was about right. relationships mm-hmm. and so for the end of it to then turn into the six feet under series finale where it's like they each describe when they go and how they go i was like where why are we discussing this it just it didn't it didn't resonate with me and maybe well, that's all it is no i actually me. wanted to just push back on it for two seconds Please to do. say that like i was thinking that too but then it was interesting because i took oh i took a note on my phone during it that there's the sense I took at one point, there's a sense that everybody's on a precipice of something. Mm-hmm. And so like Perry and Arthur constantly checking in to see, are we okay? Gregory and Bobby, obviously having their own moment. AIDS, the social unrest, turning the TV, turning CNN, and I'm watching people be brutalized. Like there's always this sense of like, are we good? Like, where are we at? What's yeah. the thing that's t- keeping us together? How are we tethered? And so I think that like, in finding out sort of like what happens post the play it was a bite-sized way for them to be like we didn't actually make it as a couple yeah like we got rid of it so like in a way because it's not the end and end of the play it's not the last thing we see i feel like it's not as i'm a ghost as i'm a ghost yeah like it they say it and then we again we bleed out of that sort of more abstract sense back into reality so in that sense i like understood it but i get what you mean about i think i would have liked it more i I liked the bobby uh gregory moment because you know it starts with perry saying how he's gonna go and then arthur says how he goes and then i think buzz is after him ramon and then it's bobby gregory i'm almost positive i remember that because i'm stupid my brain is weird i'm also entirely possibly making this up i just i know it that it's perry arthur first because the perry thing it threw me and perry's like oh also Depending on when this play takes place, we could be in the midst of Perry's death. Oh, because he says it. 27, it's 27 years, uh, four months, eight days, something like that. Or eight months, four days, right. like that. So if this is taking place on Labor Day weekend of 1994, 1995, either Perry has now been dead for six months or he's going to die in about like three months from now of when we record this. So, sorry, Perry. R.I.P. But, whoa. Craziness, right? I thought about that when I was like, when is 27 years from this moment? Whoa. R.I.P. Perry. And then Arthur three years after that. And Buzz is already dead. Ramon is dead. Uh, right. Is it a plane? Pl- Ramon was in a plane. Was... 
on so again it's one of those things where they were given a few details but ramon like was the pilot drunk what i got from it was that ramon eventually would have his own company like gregory and possibly even be successful like gregory and had the means to fly like in a, in a private okay. situation oh that is what like the company was already where they needed to be he had to get there like in seven hours he like pushed yeah and yes and got yeah pushed to get a private plane or something like just him and the one pilot that is what i got out of it that would make more sense but it, but it's very vague and there's not a lot of details but what i, I bring up the bobby gregory thing because it's less about how bobby goes but rather he's like i don't remember who i'm with or how it happens and gregory says you're not with me and their conversation is about how they are no longer together and what happens after the fact basically bobby leaves gregory for another man right and gregory's never never with anybody ever again right and i appreciated that because there i feel like there's always this kind of stigma on infidelity in dramatic works where it's either like it happens and it's the thing that breaks you up forever and it's terrible or it's the thing that you work through and you're and you're stronger and it's like true love perseveres and this play kind of talks about how neither is really true you can work through it and persevere and you can get to a great place but it's never the same like arthur and perry like they still love each other it's wonderful it's great they'll they're never in doubt but it's something has shifted or it's a gregory bobby situation where you do love each other but the infidelity does come from the root of another issue and that issue ends up being the may december dynamic which you know they love each other but ultimately gregory was too old for bobby and it took bobby five years six years to realize it mm. um not not that age differences are a reason to break up but it was the reason why bobby broke up yeah um and so i appreciate that mcnally does that with both couples of like we have two couples with infidelity one makes it one doesn't but even the one that makes it like they're not you know uh idealistic they're not like better than ever right yeah which i again i, I appreciate that. yeah i appreciate it because i think that is actually one of the more realistic elements of relationships in the play and something that uh i feel like we as queer people kind of always wrestle with and have to acknowledge there is Not to toot my own horn, but in my writing, in my play, there is a conversation of sort of how we all, I have a character who does one of the addresses to the audience, and one of the themes of my play is like how we use pop culture as a way to make sense of our lives in the world, because it's, they're all just other people's stories told in a very uh, compact amount of time, and it's like, okay, like, how can I relate what's going on to me to this, like, just to make it make sense? And the character is, you know, in a monologue basically says, like, if you're a gay man and you want to have a survival movie guide it's like pay attention to the horror franchise like all horror movies they're the they're the way to get by is like because everybody in this world is just trying to live game and we have to know how to survive mm. he's like so learn when the call is coming from inside the house always know that the person trying to get you is going to come back for a second scare know that you know never take anything at face value things like that and part of that also comes with just like understand surviving also just under is understanding like the the love you have for someone the compassion you have for someone and the valor the willing to fight for what uh is right for you what you need what you want uh and also the courage to know when to walk away when it's not mm. going to be good for you and a lot of people don't do that and i really don't want to generalize but it is a lot of straight people uh 
because their lives fit the norm a lot easier than ours does. And so because we're always sort of an outlier, we've had to do a lot of extra work to know what, what it takes for us to continue standing. Yeah. And it was so interesting too, that like the two that ended up having the affair yeah. are the two who were in a house full of people who are already othered. Yeah. They were the two who were even more othered. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Bobby, like, Bobby who is blind. blind. And then Ramon, who is the one person of color. Right. Yeah. It's like, those are the two people that find each other in this house. So in a way it actually was kind of, they're also the youngest in the house right. by far. Right. There's so many things about it that make it feel kind of like, whoa. But I agree with you. And sort of the treatment of how it all wraps itself up or figures itself out is very interesting. Yeah. They, there's always talk about with Bobby, played by Justin Kirk in this production. Who's fabulous. He's fabulous. There's also so many angel connections right. to this. Because you have Joe Mantello, the original Lewis, directing it original prior steven spinella is in it justin kirk who plays prior in the hbo miniseries in it nathan lane who then goes on to play right. roy Cohn in the revival um yeah just so many so 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 many and then i mean and then joe mantello and john benjamin hickey do normal heart together right many years later they're it's all incestuous baby i love it but and yeah i mean but they're all so good yeah but Oh, no, they're all, it's a wonderful answer. They're so actors. good. Um, Spinella, for some reason, didn't transfer to Broadway with it. Anthony Held played Perry. I'm not entirely sure why. But also, Nathan Lane only did the Broadway run for like the first two months. Um, I, I'll, I'll mention this as well when we talk about Tony's for a quick second. But um, with the uh, Bobby Ramon thing, first of all, Ramon is very attractive. And, and one of the things that the play does and the production does in, it's similar to the second season of White Lotus in that it is very appreciative of the male form because mm. a lot of these men have beautiful bodies. And I don't think it's objectifying to say that is it is part of the point of it is that they have these lovely bodies and it's about enjoying the skin you're in and like loving it, especially at the end when everyone does go skinny dipping in the end, Buzz as well and Perry as well. Everyone goes naked into the lake and enjoys themselves. But... And there's also the kind of the dynamic between youth and age. You know, everyone's objectifying Ramon because he's 22 and attractive and they're all getting into their 40s and bodies are starting to fall apart. And Bobby's the only other like young person in the house. There's a lot of talk about how good Bobby is. Like he's such a nice person. He's just a sweet person, such a caring person. And I think he is. But I also, part of me wonders, you know, there's that sequence in the first act when they all get together for uh, Memorial Day weekend and, Every time they're out of the house, Bobby like goes outside for a few minutes and does something that nobody knows what it is. And it, we see it, that it's basically him like praying, praying and like being appreciative to God of everything that he has. He has a boyfriend who loves him. He's got a good life. They're, they're a country home with the friends that they entertain. But Bobby's also 25, probably maybe 24. Yeah, even. He's 20, yeah. Yeah. 20, 24, 25. No older than 24. Uh, I'm sorry, no, sorry, no older than 25, but, you know, probably around that age, twenty between 23 and 25. And Buzz, probably 38, 39, and that's the next youngest. Because then we have Perry and Arthur who are in their early 40s, Gregory who's, his, who's in his early 40s, John who's in his early 40s. And Bobby likes them all. He gets along with all of them. But Bobby's also living an early 40s, mid 40s life in his early 20s. Yeah. And part of me also wonders if, like, that appreciation is sort of like uh did you ever watch crazy ex-girlfriend no 
God damn it. I'm I'm batting zero with you. No. The first the first episode of Crazy Ex Girlfriend uh is basically just Rachel Bloom's character. You know, she's obviously very depressed and whatever, and she's about to be very successful and be made partner at her law firm or whatever. And she like has a panic attack when they offer her the position and she runs outside and she just starts saying to herself, This is what happy feels like, this is what happy feels like, this is what happy feels like. And I don't think it's as like dark as that, but part of me does wonder when Bobby does those like praying moments to God of the house and all that, if he's like, This is what happy feels like. Want. This is yeah, I should be appreciative. I have a I love the man I'm with. He loves me. He's so good to me. He's successful. He has this house we get to come up to that's, you know, wonderful. And we have friends who are smart and and, and uh successful who will drive me out to the house. Uh and you know, it's all it's this is a good life. Hmm isn't it yeah because that's sort of the thing about cheating is like it doesn't come from nowhere there's there's something that that is that happens with it and if you address that what what made the cheating happen you can work on it and fix it and that's what ultimately we are led to believe arthur and perry did is that they they figured out why it was and arthur very early in the play says to bobby no one's that hot yeah no it's not worth it's not worth it yeah and he and Bobby finds out from Arthur that he did that Arthur did cheat on Perry and asks like, well, how did Perry find out? He's like, well, I told him. Hmm. And one wonders if that's like what got Bobby to do it because Bob uh, Bobby tells Gregory a month and a half later yeah. it happens when they're all back together and kind of lies to Gregory as well about the circumstances. Uh, it takes him that long to tell him. And then he says, well, have you done it again? He says, no, unclear if that's even true. And, he sa- and he's like, well, have you wanted to? And he says, no, yeah, I love you. It's like, has. What, we saw him literally go out to the raft the and make plans yeah, yeah. Yeah, to the dock and make plans with Ramon to have sex again. Later that night. Yeah. which the, And and he would have done it if if it weren't for the phone call that his sister died. Yeah. And he has to leave for Texas that night. Paris, it, Texas. Par- Paris, Texas. Yeah. 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 True. I mean, true to all. Yeah. It, We're very insightful people, James. Well, this... Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about all of these things. But the other thing is, like, with Bobby, like, I feel like he was also really disappointed when, like, he really didn't want any extra help from anybody. And I yeah. feel like that there's a level of it that also may just come from he has to trust and use his imagination so much. Yeah. And it's also heightened around him that I think maybe in the sense that he's missing one avenue of passion or or pleasure maybe he wanted to seek it elsewhere yeah well when he falls that first time right on the rake and everyone comes helping me he literally says no one helped me except for gregory right and i don't it, it made me wonder sort of like what and then like gregory tries to be like heroic and lift him right. up and i was like what are you doing um yeah, so like, i what, thought we were headed down another bad path though when he collapsed and wasn't able to hold him i was like oh no I hope not everybody is yeah. ill. Yeah. No, that they just foreshadowed it. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And what I understand is, you know, first of all, you know, as we get, as the years have gone on, we've learned how better to take care of ourselves. So dancers' lives can go on a lot longer. Yeah. But I also kind of get the impression that he's someone who, like, when he danced, he danced hard. Hard. So he, it was, we're talking about like 25 years of like hard dancing that is now catching up with him. And he's not slowing himself down even though he should which is why his body's like giving up yeah he's like call it's like you gotta call it quits now um which he does in the end but yeah it's that relationship dynamic is very interesting and then also gregory 
you know, he martyrs Bobby so much. You know, you're my angel. He calls him his angel. Yeah. You're so good. You're my savior. I love you. Like, I'm so... He says to him, he's like, I know this is a terrible thing to say as you're about to go back to Texas to bury your decapitated sister, but I'm so happy right now. Hmm. And it's like... Hey. And also, that's another toxic trait of, like, wrapping up so much of your happiness and joy in life in your partner. Because they're just another person in this world, baby. And they're just as broken as the rest of us. You should have joy with them. But they should not be your. Yeah, they are not your blanket. They are, they are a pillow. Mm -hmm. They give you support. They are not your protection. Right. That is. Oh fuck! Love that. Oh my god! I should. I need to write that down on a pillow. Right. Somebody write that down. That's going to my play. A partner is a pillow, not a blanket. They're your support, not your protection. Not your protection. Mother flying fucker. The blanket is protection. Yeah. And the pillow is support. Yeah. Girl. And sometimes if you're like me and you have a bad neck and back, you don't even sleep with a pillow. What do you sleep with? Nothing. You know what comes between James and his bed? Nothing. No, but like, isn't that interesting too to your analogy? Yeah. Because like a partner is sometimes, you know, they're sometimes not but the blanket I always have on. Mm. I don't know. I think you're headed down a road of hurt, pain and hurt. A pert. Her. No, God help no. Me. I'm I'm speaking purely symbolically, not realistically. I hope. I hope. Yeah. Whatever the. I hope not. So you, so you so you just sleep. Well, you can also view view the mattress then as your support. The mattress is the support. I just don't like referring to people as mattresses. Right. What's that from? Golden Girls. Yeah, human mattress. No. Right. I was like, what is that from? It's this is love, valor, compassion. The the reference upon reference upon mm-hmm. reference. And B. Arthur would have liked that. B. Arthur would have loved it. And I'm sure she. She was alive for the. Yeah, they they were all still alive for this. Estelle Getty was the first to go, and I think she died in ninety nine two thousand. Oh yeah, so yeah. B would have maybe even saw the play. Maybe she did. Who knows? Yeah, I the I know the exact order. It was Estelle B Rue Betty. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Wait, but also speaking of the Tonys, though. Yes. Nathan did not win. Nathan was not nominated. Because he was only with it for two months. So that's what I'm thinking. So, okay, there there are two things about the awards of valor compassion yeah. that are interesting also so um i also wanted to 
draw this uh this article up from the new york times that i found uh the play when it transferred to broadway so it transferred uh january or yeah i think previews were january of 95 and then officially opened in early february so like two three weeks of previews um and then they recouped in april after only six weeks so they were um maybe i have this wrong uh they that's wild they either they started maybe maybe they started previews end of january open mid-february something like that but yeah six weeks of broadway performances and they recouped and this was because of um was this the walter kerr walter kerr theater yep uh speaking of angels again where angels america premiered uh it had a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar capitalization which you know even for that time relatively small i think angels cost like four times that amount when it was produced on broadway but it's you know smallish cast unit set um and there was a deal made with the broadway alliance that allowed it to uh cost so little and run on such a small amount of money to recoup um the alliance sorry under the alliance which was begun in 1990 to save plays from ever rising costs and ticket prices virtually everyone involved in a show agrees to caps on fees salaries rent and ticket prices it applies only to some broadway houses mostly those without orchestra pits or otherwise unsuitable for musicals and also it does not apply to off broadway which uh, uses mostly non-union labor there have been five shows up into love Val- uh, with including love valor compassion no uh, five shows before Love, Valor, Compassion that adhere to the Alliance, The Speed of Darkness, Our Country's Good, Crazy He Calls Me, Mixed Emotions, and Any Given Day, all of which were financial flops and was making uh, the Broadway League reconsider the Alliance until Love, Valor, Compassion, which was able to recoup because of that. So basically everyone in the company made the same salary or made a lot less. There was a, there was a cap, so no one could make it over a certain amount. It was favorite nations. Um, yeah, I guess it was a favorite nations contract. I don't know if maybe they changed the name to that, but also Terrence McNally, Joe Mantello, all the designers, but that also applied to the rent. Uh, Drew Jamson could not, uh, put a rising cost on the rent for them, but not just them, but like, I guess any plays that were going into the Walter Kerr. Wow. Um, and then ticket pricing, all this stuff. So everything was done cost effective as, as cost effective as possible. And it allowed them to recoup in a month and a half. So this was before Manhattan Theater Club purchased the Samuel Friedman Theater. Yes. As their, like, home base. Yes, Manhattan Theater Club did not have a Broadway house. Because this was the home of Proof. This was the home of Walter Kerr. Yeah, Walter Kerr is a, is a commercial Broadway house. Yeah, Um. at that point, the only two nonprofit theater companies that had a Broadway residency was Lincoln Center Theater had the Beaumont. Right. And Roundabout had um the Criterion. No, oh. the cri- Criterion, whatever it's called, place. That closed up shop in 99 after Little Me. Uh, they bought the uh they bought they bought studio 54 cabaret when yeah when when cabaret transferred they bought studio 54 because they refurbished it to be like the henry miller theater and then they bought the henry miller theater after um you're in town left right yeah and then it was and now it's what now it's the sondheim and it's what it is but yes uh manhattan theater club did not have a broadway house at that point like 97 or so i think it came i think they bought it later later than that yeah they bought it Oh yeah, that has to be later because Lynn Meadow put up proof at at um well not yeah Manhattan Theater Club yeah uh, proof was off Broadway and then transferred to uh, Walter Kerr yeah yeah like, yeah so yeah so and then I think uh, Doubt was also Manhattan Theater Club mm-hmm. same theater uh, the uh, stage that Love Valor was at I'm almost positive don't quote me on that no, we'll I know we'll know in the actual Doubt episode when we do Doubt <laughs> but um 
The other thing with Love, Valor, Compassion with the, with the awards. So we have the Tonys, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, Love, Valor, Compassion was considered the front runner for the Pulitzer that year. A lot of it was the narrative of Terrence of like, he's back. He's, you know, big career revival. Uh, best play he's ever written. It's of the moment. It's a play of the moment. He's, you know, captured the zeitgeist. It's not to like sound like a parry, but it's, this, it's, a, it's an AIDS play. And, you know, that was getting a lot of awards these days. And then it didn't win. It wasn't even one of the finalists Finalist. that year. It, the three finalists were uh, The Cryptogram by David Mamet, Seven Guitars by August Wilson, and The Young Man from Atlanta by Horton Foote. Now, I know Mamet's a shit, but this was like, he was still in peak Mamet form, so it's not out of the ordinary that he would be a finalist. Wilson, one of the greatest playwrights of all time. And then Young Man from Atlanta by Horton Foote, also one of our great playwrights. So What won the Pulitzer? Young Man from Atlanta won. Oh. But I, but the article talked about how like a lot of people in the community were very baffled and thought it might have there might have been some agenda behind it and the committee was you know a pretty diverse group for the Pulitzer uh, critics playwrights whatnot uh, one of them it was Clive Barnes from the Post Frank Rich um, a couple other people and they they were like basically cornered like why didn't you give it to Love Alley Compassion uh, and the Pulitzer has had issues in the past of like not awarding the best play. For the Pulitzer, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, famously did not get the Pulitzer, and everyone was like, "That's bullshit." But they were the committee was asked, and they're like, "We know we 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 discussed it. We know we we everyone brought up the plays that they loved that year, and like two people brought up Love, Valor, Compassion, and really championed it, and the rest of us talked about it, and we all kind of realized we all liked it. None of us loved it, or validated or compassioned it. But uh, yeah, there was like we we came up with five plays that we really thought were really exceptional. We narrowed it down to our three finalists. And then we picked the one we thought was the best. Like that was all it really was to it. And I got to say, watching it today with you and reading it, like I get it. Like, I think this is a good play. Uh, I think it's not always good. And I don't really think it's Pulitzer worthy. Uh, You know, the moments that work best for me are the moments that are not quote unquote, the important moments, like all the, the, soapbox moments don't do it for me it's the intimate personal moments that really do it yeah. for me but that's also just my mo no i love those moments yeah like the just the perry and buzz kiss on the forehead moment at the beginning of the play is so much more interesting to me than buzz's whole like oh funny thing happened away to the farm and nothing happens and it's not funny i mean nathan sells the shit out of it but i don't love that speech uh the other thing with the tonys nathan was petitioned for lead which i think was a mistake oh first of all this isn't this is an ensemble play if ever there was one and buzz is definitely the showiest role but he's not the lead it's not his story it's a lot of people's story he doesn't yeah. even get he doesn't even get the last word he doesn't get the first word he doesn't get the last word but they put him in lead because i think he was the most famous one at the time hmm. and lion king had also come out at this point i realized right. yeah even though i don't think like he was like it wasn't like nathan lane in the lion king but you know he makes, a, he makes a joke about it at the Tony Awards that year. He co-hosts the Tonys that year with Glenn Close and Gregory Hines. But he this got to, year? For the year of Love, Valor, Compassion, yeah. But he was petitioned for lead, and he left the production um, in like mid-April, before the nominations came out. Mario Cantone replaced him. To do what? I think to do Birdcage. Uh... I think he went off to do Birdcage. And I do think the fact that he wasn't in it anymore, and that he wasn't really the lead... Uh, took him out of the took running. him out of the running. Yeah, so the nominees for this were they were nominated for play and won, 
nominated for director uh did not win did not win he so meant the big play that year really love out of compassion was a hit but like the play that was the play of the moment that season was the revival of the heiress with cherry jones right that ran twice as long as love out of compassion made cherry jones a star um and they won revival they won actress supporting actress and director for gerald gutierrez and and what's funny is i was watching the tony ceremony and listeners of the pod who listened to that episode will know sarah jessica parker presented best director of a play to gerald gutierrez who would go on to direct her two years later in In once upon a mattress which was like such a horrible experience for everybody and everyone blames him for it so i'm like oh that's just like how life works though right like who would have thought two years later sarah jessica parker would be headlining a production of once upon a mattress directed by the very guy she gives his first tone can we talk about that for three seconds sure okay so I admittedly have never seen an episode of Sex in the City, but I have seen all of them just like that. Sure. So I know who Carrie Bradshaw is. I know the world, but I know that it didn't air. I know that it didn't air until... 98. 98, thank you. This Once Upon a Mattress revival was 96, 7? It was the winter of 97 and closed, I believe, in June of 90. No, take it back. So uh, winter of 96 closed in uh, spring of 97. What am I forgetting or not knowing aside from hocus pocus of her career what is she like how do you headline like sarah jessica parker in once upon a mattress and it be so like monumental well first of all she had been working since like she was a kid yeah yeah, she was and she she was sort of she started off as kind of like a a teen early 20s actress who everyone was like everyone recognized her she was sort of like the teenage Catherine Hahn is the best i want to describe it like was in footloose she had learned her own teen movie girls just want to have fun uh she got a major boost when she played sort of the sexy character in a steve martin film called la love story i think is what it's called i know um she basically she just worked in a lot of things and became sort of famous by playing major supporting roles in movies that were extremely successful and then lead roles in movies that were sort of successful. So by that point though, Hocus Pocus was one, but although that flopped first wives club Mars attacks, uh, she had a couple of other ones that she was a leader. But by that point it wasn't like today. It's like Sarah Jessica Parker. No, she, and she, she also was at that point with Matthew Broderick and they had sort of become a celebrity couple. Well, they did how I'm, she went in she went in there yeah how to succeed for like she went she replaced megan Megan right she replaced megan mullally and then she i think she closed out the show with john stamos but at that point he was a tremendously amount more famous he was way more famous than she was uh she was she was decently famous like she was known and they got together and she got more famous by being with him um and i would say that probably also boosted his street cred a bit it's like you know anyone who's famous becomes more famous when they're with someone who's famous it's that it's just that thing. But it was like Sex in the City that Sex in the City was she was considered a a if not a movie star, a major, major movie actress. Like she had a career going. So her doing an HBO show was almost considered suicide. No one knew why she was doing it. It was like, oh, are we just blowing up our career now? Because this was at the time that HBO was still sort of HBO was not really big they not had doing a... sopranos yet not doing yeah, it was six feet under yeah it was pre all that um and not and even though it was 
even with HBO aside, movie like, stars weren't doing TV shows. TV, TV actors wanted to become movie stars. The Friends actors were trying desperately to become movie stars. You you were famous and you were rich from doing TV, but you weren't like a respected movie star. Uh, and that was always sort of considered elusive for TV actors of making the jump. No one could ever do it. And if you were a movie star who then went into TV, that was considered a major step Suicide. back. Yeah. I see. It's very different now. So different now. So different now. It's Now it's like, oh, yeah, you're a movie star. But like, have you done a limited series yet for HBO? Like, that'll right. tell us that you're good. Right. Um. Yeah, no, Sex and the City made her an institution. And now she's bigger than he is. But, yeah. <laughs> this is to say, yes, Joe, Joe, Joe Mantello lost the Tony to Gerald Gutierrez. Presented by Sarah Jessica Parker, little which you know a year and a half later, the hell she would go through with him. Uh, three actors for Love, Valor, Compassion were nominated for featured actor. John Glover. John Glover, who won? Who won? Right. Okay. S- Stephen Bogardus nominated. Makes sense. Yeah, and then was Justin uh, Kirk nominated? No. no. Anthony Held was nominated. Who he played Perry, replacing Stephen Spinella. Um, I and honestly, I think the four roles that are the most like meaty are. Glovers playing the twins. Definitely. Buzz. Uh and and Nathan was nominated for the drama desk and I think even won. Huh. Yeah. And then so him not being nominated was considered a big shock. Uh but yes, Buzz, the twins, Perry, and then probably Gregory. Uh just just because of the opportunities Gregory has for the physicality of you the role. You don't think Bobby? I think Bobby is what you bring to it. I think Justin on the page, I find Bobby to be kind of a wet blanket. I think what Justin Kirk brings to it he's fabulous he is and 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 obviously like there is there's material there for him to work with but i think a role like buzz is almost actor proof you can having a great actor doing it makes a world of difference but buzz is actor proof uh perry you run the risk with a bad actor a bad direction of just being like oh god this asshole again but he's got good lines and then with the twins it's just the very fact that you're playing a dual role and that's very impressive uh even like I don't know, even Ramon or Arthur. There's with good actors, as we we saw, you can have a lot of great stuff there. But it is up to the actor and director to make that path. Yeah. Um. Whereas other roles, it's sort of like just. I hate to bring it up again. There was a Tony winning performance in the last handful of years, who won with a big number, and the way I described it was that number is designed to stop the show. It was staged to stop the show. All the actor has to do is ride the train. That performer rode the train well, but that's all you have to do. You just ride the train. And that's kind of like the buzz in Twins role in this play. It's like, just ride the train and you're golden. Everyone else, it's like, the the material is there. You kind of have to step up to the plate, though. Yeah, I, I see that. I feel like I remember Mary Louise Parker talking about that with Angels in America when she won. Yeah. Her, like, Emmy speech or something was like, all of us are just kind of... Yeah. Like Tony Kushner and Michael Nichol- Mike Nichols are brilliant. Like yeah. we're just kind of like, thank you. Yeah, she talked. She talked about that in um the World Spins Forward book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's like I'll- foolproof. She was like Harper is just yeah brilliant. Yeah, I think was it her who was talking about that? Mama, like maybe might have- one of the actresses who played Harper at one point, whether it was Mary Louise or Cynthia Nixon or no, I know Deborah Messing did Perestroika at NYU. Right. Yeah. right. They taught one of them talked about that monologue, and they were like. Because I think it was like, or maybe it might have been Zoe Kazan. The knife flight, too. The knife flight, yeah. Might have even been Zoe Kazan. Uh, one of them, because there was talk about like a multitude of them, of like how hard it was to crack that monologue. And one of them is like, I found that monologue incredibly easy just because it was so brilliant. I didn't have to do jack shit. Like, it wasn't about me. I just, Harper is an insightful, brilliant mind. 
messed up and you know finding clarity for the first time but like that is where that is all it is just sitting there and just doing it and for a lot of those actresses it was difficult um like marsha k harden talked about how like she was hiding behind her wig for so long she wanted that like stupid prairie on the farm uh farm on the prairie wig and george Sewell had to like wrestle it out of her hands and he's like stop hiding and just do it yeah and that is kind of yeah it's it, it's the it's finding the difference between what are you bringing to the table and what are you oversaturating what are you over seasoning you know they all did such a truly it was i'm so glad that we watched it because they brought it to such beautiful and unexpected at times life oh yeah um they they just they found so many nooks and crannies of humor really realism it was, it was it was a lovely job um and I don't know if I ever want to see another version of it again. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty foolproof. I would love to do a reading of it with you. Oh, it's so fun. It would be so much fun. I did do a reading of Significant Other a few months back, and that was very cathartic. Really? Yeah. I need to... Uh, Allie Gordon and I would like to do a, a reading of Angels at some point, because she has to read Harper and I have to read Lewis. It just... It's got to happen. Especially with recent events. Uh some of the shit that Lewis has gone through. I'm like, I should probably do this out in a play at least once. Wow. Damn. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about, but I'm like, damn, I like forgot. Like there's so much that happens in plays. In all the plays. Yes. But all the, six hours. Yes. The, the Lewis Joe Pitt storyline. I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I should probably get these emotions out at one point. Sure. With, with a group of friends and have a brilliant writer. Give me the guy. Coax you through it. Yeah. Just ride the train. Ride the train. Yeah. Speaking of riding the trains, uh, do you think Bobby rode Ramon's train or Ramon rode Bobby's train? Because Justin Kirk is taller than the actor who played Ramon, but I don't know. I feel like Bobby's a bottom. I don't actually know because I feel like Ramon loved to like advertise. Yeah. That's something also that I want to sort of discuss. We haven't really talked about many of the characters. We talked about Perry a lot. We talked about Buzz, a little bit of Bobby. Um, and Bobby's relationship with Gregory, but like when we talk about the male form in this play, oh. Ramon is definitely the one who's the most objectified. Sure, he's the youngest, he's quote unquote the hottest, and he's the one who is definitely naked the most. Like his fully when, naked. Yeah, when the when the play play begins, not the introduction, but like the scenes begin, he comes out naked. Yeah, we full and and very comfortable. And I wrote something about sort of like there is. Obviously, everyone has their baggage, but I feel like there is a comfort and a confidence that some people get when they have been lucky enough to get physical attributes that many people tell them are pleasing, hmm. which is the which is the most PC way I can say when someone is objectively hot. Um, but right, you know, like right. when, yeah, when when someone has. A body and a face that just like for many years are just told like you're hot or just, it's just the way you're treated certain people get treated very differently based on how they look yeah. and there's a confidence you can get in that of just like walking around with your dick out and and not caring especially with everyone in that house ramon doesn't really necessarily want to sleep with so right. so he's not worried about turning anybody on or turning himself on he's like it's like they can do what they want i know they like it i know everyone likes it and there's a i don't know it's an, i feel like i've just found a very interesting commentary of that of of the male form of uh male confidence of physical confidence that comes from uh 
um, being objectified that I don't know, Ramon at the end of the day is still just kind of like kind of a, a big nothing, you know? Yeah. Not a bad person necessarily, but it's all machismo, it's all confidence, all bravado, but he doesn't, he's not much of a thinking man. He is supposedly a very good dancer, but he's, and, and cares about dance, but he doesn't really have a career going. He doesn't, his, his mind is on the wrong stuff. He should be worrying about his craft and his career. And he's more worried about like turning people on and yes. and being hot. And, and I liked that turn at the end of the play where he and Gregory kind of connect in that great way. I did think it was a bit of a hard pivot for Gregory, but whatever it's we're, we were wrapping things up at that point but when gregory basically says to ramon like join my company do the solo for the dance that i've spent this entire summer right. figuring out it that's that that's a turning point for ramon as well he can stop just being the young hot objective stuff. yeah yeah and stop being objectified and start doing something yeah and yeah i don't know i i I enjoyed that. I also thought there was something to be said about like the costuming of him over the course of the of the, mm-hmm. of the period. Slightly more covered up. Yes. Little less. Uh, but still the most fitted. Yeah, fitted for sure. I mean, he's got a body. He's not going to not show it off, but not always like walking around with the swagger of yes. you want to see me naked. I know you do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. And I feel like Arthur like worked through it. Worked through what? Hit with with Bobby. Gregory. Gregory, sorry. I think Gregory and him kind of, like, worked through it. They did, yeah. And I think that was sort of his, like, way of kind of being like, okay, like, do you want to be in my piece? And, like, this is how we're going to move through this. I need to at least, like, see you and, like, have you around and know what's going on and I can be okay with this. I got, I found the moment where Gregory kind of made peace was in the disposal scene uh so gregory finds out at the end of act two that bobby and ramon had sex right and then we flash forward to labor day weekend uh which is you know a month and a half later i guess yeah and they're all back for act three and bobby and gregory are still together but it's not great and unclear and ramon doesn't know that gregory knows right and he's there in the kitchen one morning dancing and like trying to make light with Gregory and Gregory's not responding. And then eventually Gregory just grabs his arm and forces him to put his hand in the disposal with the threat of when to cut your fingers, fingers off. Yeah. And he's got Gregory. He's Gregory's got Ramon in a very compromising position, a very dangerous position, very violent position. And ultimately Ramon does put his hand in the disposal, but it takes a lot of threatened coaxing. And once he gets him to that brink, he lets go and he's able to sort of release all the toxic anger mm. he had. And you feel like like in that moment, yeah. he's expunged of. Yeah, it's, it's it almost feels like I mean, everyone has what they need for closure, I suppose. And for me personally, with the traumas that I have had with people. What has helped me is understanding ultimately who the person I experienced the trauma with is at their core. And the only way to know that is when the chips of life are down, how are they going to act? How are they going to respond? Like what are, what, what is that person going to act and their most animalistic urges? Are they going to fight? Are they going to cower? Are they going to be strong and independent? Are they going to be weak? 
And I think part of Gregory has this feeling of vulnerability of being so much older than Ramon, his body starting to fall apart, and his much younger lover, who he's so in- obsessed with, had this moment of weakness with a guy he can't even see but could at least tell is, you know, fitter, younger, and makes him feel a bit wounded and ultimately kind of wanted to see in this moment of danger, if I were to get Ramon in a moment of vulnerability, would he be stronger than me or weaker than me? Mm. Is he uh is he ultimately more of a man than I am for lack of a better term? More of a man than I am or would he, you know Surrender. Surrender, yeah. And even though Ramon does put his hand in the in the disposal, it's not he he acts like it's an act of defiance, but because it takes so much pressure to do it, it is ultimately surrendering to Gregory. Mm. I found, especially when Gregory lets him go, and then once he lets him go, that's when Ramon like pumps himself back up and like, I would have popped you one and blah blah blah. And Gregory doesn't take any of it to heart and he just goes, Would you like some coffee, Ramon? And Ramon's like, Oh fuck yourself. Yes, please, with milk. And that's all Gregory needed to hear. It's all he needed to see to get his bit of closure of he's not better than me in any way. It was a moment. He he found he found a way in in a moment of vulnerability. He got it. Bobby's still with me though. And this guy is ultimately no different than I am or better than I am. Mm. I think you're right. That is what I got from it. And that is also from my own mental instability. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because it's easier, you know, they say this about like good plays and good players. Like you'll see it like on stage. Yeah. So I think it's more interesting to process that there than like in the intervening time between acts. Absolutely. Um, And so it wasn't, you're thinking that it wasn't like a forced smile of like coffee. Like it really was like a, I have rid myself of this. I've gotten what I need. Would you like your coffee black or do you want? I, that is what I got, especially from the way that Stephen Bogart has played it. Because mm. he, I think you could play it as a whole act thing of like, I'm good, I'm great. But watching Stephen play that scene, I did not get that it was false. Mm. Um, I think because of how quick the switch was, it could seem that way. But I didn't get that from him. Sure, sure. And maybe I'm misinterpreting. I would love to sit him down and be like, talk to me about that scene. What was going on in your head? I know, I would love to talk to Stephen Bogart as. You know, I, I mean, let's talk to that whole company. Let's. First, we get Joe. We get Joe in here. We say, Joe, honey, sweetie, boo-boo, child. There should be, like, um, speaking of, like, the world only spins forward, I feel like there should be some kind of book about this play. Um, I would like a book about a lot of the queer plays of yeah. the 80s and 90s and just sort of the pro- the progression of it and which ones were able to click and be successful and which ones weren't and why and what that did for writers and actors, like, and how everybody is so interwoven. Yeah. So we have someone like John Benjamin Hickey. Oh, my God. Didn't really pop until the mid-2000s. He, I mean, he worked. He did. He, after this, he would do Cabaret with Natasha right. Robinson and Pitch Perfect and all that stuff. But, like, it wasn't really until Normal Heart in 2011, I think, mm-hmm. where he really kind of came back with a vengeance and very open about his homosexuality and has done a lot of right. work as a gay character. And then, of course, The Inheritance. The Inheritance as well. Yes. Yeah, like, well... And again, that's the representation. There are more stories, there are more roles, and he doesn't always have to just play straight and pass to get work. But that is also kind of his energy. Like he's a he's a rather masculine feeling gentleman. Yeah. Uh, but even like Steven Spinella, Steven Spinella blows up with Angels in America and does this right after. He doesn't really 
he should have been like a titan of the theater for the rest of the 90s and early 2000s and that didn't really happen no he's he's around and he works but not to the extent that he should not to the capacity yeah yeah um nathan lane is the one who kind of is blown up in the way that he should have and already was blowing up at that point um but i don't i mean birdcage got very lucky with how well that movie did Mm. uh and getting to play such a prominent queer role but then doesn't really play gay much after birdcage plays like very outlandish straight roles like max bialystok and pseudolus and things like that right i'm missing you know i loved other desert cities i saw justin kirk in it Mm -hmm. again um you know somebody i love loved him in weeds but i'm missing him on stage yeah we're seeing things john benjamin hickey's around though i would love to see him in more absolutely St- steven spinella Stephen bogardis i think last thing that i saw him in was um i saw him in bright star which he was very underused in the father right he's the father he plays the adopted father yeah right the and one then, who finds the baby in the in the bag yes and then i think i also saw him maybe potentially in a girl from the north country at the public shit i think he was in that i think he's it at the public and then so i loved him in that i love him in everything all of them and nathan lane how lucky are we we get to see a play of his in a few weeks i know that's coming up soon it's it's him burstein and zoe, zoe wanamaker yeah. yeah directed by bartlett share what the fuck is that gonna be and like? written by char white who i love so i'm actually very like oh my gosh yeah lots of cool shiz yeah i you know i would love a reunion of that cast one night only just get it during and then I don't know. I want to see some. I want to see some reunions of others in that cast doing other things together. Yeah, yeah. Who was the actor who played Ramon? He's. Nick. I actually don't. He's the only actor that I don't know. Yeah. Um. His name is Randy Becker. Why does that sound familiar? Let's look up Randy Becker for a second, shall we? Uh, please. Because he seemed familiar, but I don't know that I've seen him. Yeah. Um. Oh, apparently. Uh. During one of the Broadway performances of Love, Valor, Compassion on Broadway, he had an epileptic seizure off stage, and his understudy had to finish halfway through. Uh, that has nothing to do with his career, though. Oh God! Um, he did do the movie. Nathan Lane was the only one of the original off-Broadway company who did was not that. Jason Alexander who did it the w- film. Yep, which I also have on DVD, by the way. How's the film? It's okay. It's I mean, it's realistic. You know, they uh, they don't speak to the camera. No, as I I don't recall that they speak to the camera um they jason alexander has his opening speech to someone on the bus up to the house got it otherwise there's no direct address yeah he's married to jenna matson they have two children okay so he's straight um he's done some stuff he was in the movie sabrina he played the trainer sabrina uh he was in four episodes of the tv show jack and jill uh, he's done some producing. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's... I guess, I mean, he's worked, but he's not... This was definitely, like, his biggest thing. And um, no other plays or musicals. Let me see what he's done on Broadway. His only thing on Broadway is Love, Valor, Compassion. I guess yeah. that explains why. Because, as you know, as a child, I was really only studying theater. I yeah. didn't really know what was happening on TV or movies. And also, like, who's watching the remake of Sabrina with Harrison Ford and being like, who's playing that trainer over there? And the, and that role actually came out. I think the movie came out while Love, Valor, Compassion was on Broadway. So it's not like he got okay. it from the from the play. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, he's definitely the only one from the cast who hasn't 
really kind of gone on in any major way, which is not to undercut his career. But, I mean, he's very good in the play. He's very attractive in the play. Like, I would have expected at the very least a modeling contract. But, I mean, that's also the thing is, like, this play didn't... This was not, like, the cultural touchstone that I think we've been implying that it was. It was big in the theater community for the time that it ran. But this wasn't an Angels where, the, where it became national news. This was not a Torch Song trilogy that ran for four years and toured the country. Uh, this was a succinctly successful play. It succinctly successful or yeah. successfully succinct like had a very had a very good off-broadway run that was able to go immediately to broadway where it ran for seven months made money won the tony and closed up shop before you know uh it got dire right but i don't think ever transferred i never never toured any major regional productions i have never personally heard of me neither yeah um so we did good work today in our investigation i think so uh, and then it's a solid second before Joe Mantello directs on Broadway again, which is a shame. But now he just can't stop directing, and we're grateful. So grateful. But I also love watching him act. He is a brilliant actor. Yeah, so I, you kind of can't go wrong. Yeah. Well, honestly, some of the best directors have also been great actors. Um, George C. Wilson is a wonderful actor and a brilliant writer. Mike Nichols. Have you ever seen any of Mike Nichols acting? No, just the comedy stuff. I mean, the comedy's great. Him with Elaine May. My God. Heaven. Have and that's one of the best books I've ever read. The Mike Nichols biography. Oh my gosh, so fucking good. But like he, they're both just so natural. She's an amazing actress as well. And the, that the, those sketches would not work nearly as well as they do if they weren't as good at acting. The Waverly Gallery, I mean, all of it. She's Waverly Gallery. Jesus, motherfucking titty Christ, that blew was my that mind. a brilliant performance? One of the best I've ever seen. It just wasn't acting, but um, yeah, and there's like these these directors who. I think I think the best directors, if not necessarily all great actors, have had experience in one other field besides directing. Have had a foot in writing or acting or design or something like that. Even Hal Prince, you know, producing. So he understood like what it took to get a show together. Anyone who just comes purely from the directing standpoint, I'm like, you become a dictator and you aren't actually collaborative with your writers and you aren't help approaching your actors in a way that's helpful to them. Um, like Jerome Robbins, Michael Bennett, and Bob Fosse brilliant men but also they were not educated and they never really worked as actors they worked as performers but not as actors so you hear all these horror stories about how they got their actors to give them the performances they needed because they did not know how, how else, else to, to get. ask yeah. yeah i mean the one thing that i'll say about joe mantello too is just that like but the thing that i was going to say about joe mantello too it, since this is an episode about him is um always forever i had one of my first like when i first graduated from college i had a call back for the last shift that he was directing and i remember it was like at telsey's old office and i'm sure he does this to everybody but it just stood out as something like wow this is somebody that i i have admired you know for yeah. so long like my whole life and like he was the first person like next to bernie telsey to like get up and like come to the door and like walk across the whole room and like shake your hand and be like i'm so glad that you were able to to come here today like it's so nice to meet you thank you and i was just like what but i think again it's like he knows what it is to enter that room and Absolutely. put yourself out there and i was just so blown away by that generosity and how present he was throughout the entirety of all of it yeah and i don't know i just i'm glad that we spoke so much about him but also i hope that we paid enough homage to the late terence mcdally yeah no terence was a very good writer and i i think his best work was uh 
honestly in librettos but love valor compassion is a lovely play master class is so much fun um all right we gotta wrap things up james yeah we have a game we do now with this series okay they are the same game with just two different titles one is called who lives who dies janine Desori. the other is called six degrees of sally murphy they are the same game it is just six degrees of both women okay and we have to find six degrees from this show to both of these women separately oh um we can include so it's cast members of shows um it can be writers it can be directors too uh or or designers we try not to do replacement actors and it can you can do like revivals of stuff but so like for example anybody that was a part of this play yes so like uh i'm trying to give an example of like one show we did where it was like oh uh original production of once upon a mattress carol burnett did putting it together which was designed by bob crowley who designed carousel with sally murphy like that kind of thing yeah so who do we want to start with first you need story sally murphy Janita's story is actually pretty easy. Yeah, you think you got one? Maybe. Go for it. We start with Janine. No, you, you, um, well, we try to find somebody in this show and then try to connect it to Janine. But you could, but you could also work backwards. Start with the cheese and then find your way to the beginning. Maybe it's actually not as easy and I'm a big mouth. No, okay. Okay. Let's, let's, let's try. Let's pick somebody from Love, Valor, Compassion. Do you want to pick? Or do you want to pick Terrence himself? But can you? The last question that I have before we do it is like, can a thing be an institution or no? What do you mean a thing can be an institution? Like, can a thing be like a person, place, or thing? Place or thing. Playwrights arise it, or like the. Oh no no no! Um, it can't be an institution. It has yeah. to be yeah. a person. Uh, yes, it has to be a person, a show. Yeah, a person, a show. It can't be like yeah, Playwrights Horizons does not count. Unless it was a production of Playwrights Horizons, of Vi- like if a production of the, that Violet production, someone in that show connected to Love, Valor, Compassion. I'll start with Sally Murphy, because this one's easy and short. Terrence McNally wrote the libretto to Man of the oh, Horns yeah, that's with Sally no fun. Murphy. There we go. Yeah, that's no fun. Okay, Terrence McNally wrote the libretto to Ragtime with Audrey McDonald, who's in Carousel with Sally Murphy. Uh, that's more fun. Sure. Janine is harder, but I think there's something with the public, but I just have to figure out what it is. So we've got... Fun Home, Carolina Change, Violet, Thoroughly Modern Millie. We could also do when she did the vocal and dance arrangements for How to Succeed or for the revival of Sound of Music. We can also talk about how she was the, uh, she did, I think, the vocal arrangements for Secret Garden and was even the music director of that. But like, is it, so I feel like I'm doing a terrible job with this, but like Janine Tesori wrote Carolina Change. Great. Okay. Okay. She collaborated with George C. Wolfe. Yeah, no, that counts. So what you could say is Stephen Spinella. Stephen Spinella. In Angels in America, directed by George C. C. Wolf, who directed who Caroline Change, Change for Janine's story. Yes. So I found it. You just found it, yeah. Great. Also, Joe Mantello, Angels in America. Right. Yeah, all works out. It's all coming back to me now. But so I did it. You did it. You did it. You did it, Joe. We did it, Joe. <laughs> James, this has been delightful. Where can people find you if you want them to find you? Uh, at James underscore Crichton. Amazing. Um, if you want to find me at Matt Coplick, usual spelling, if you like the podcast, give us five stars, give us a nice review. Ooh, ooh, fuck, 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 fuck. Um, we have a new review. Shit. I need to I need to give Shout it out. Yeah, get a credit where it's due. Okay, are we ready? Um cue the light in the piazza overture music. <clears throat> five stars. The big move to another rating. 
I had left a review for this podcast when it first started, five stars then as well, but since the podcast has changed a lot since then, I have decided to edit my review. <laughs> this podcast is so much fun because it shares so much Broadway history of shows, exclamation point, always worth five stars, exclamation point, love, exclamation point, valor, exclamation point, compassion, exclamation point, bringing it all back together. Thank you so much. Uh, James, we got to close this out with some Broadway diva. I just don't know who, and there are no women in this fucking show. Hmm. So we can, let's do some overlap. Um, There's reference to Judy Holiday, Lucille Ball, Ethel Merman, Barbara Cook, Barbara Streisand, Judy Garland. I think you need to end with, um, Hey, Look Me Over. Hey, look me over, lend me any. Yeah, that's my. Or Elaine Stritch singing something from Sail On, Sail Away, Sail Away, Sail Away. We've already used her. I have done Elaine. We'll do Lucille. We'll do Hey, Look Me Over. Hey, Look Me Over. Yeah, it's 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 the first musical number reference in the show. Yeah. Hey, Look Me Over. There we go. Done. Join us next week for God knows what because this whole thing's being done out of order and I don't know. It's all a mess. Um. And that's it for now. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, James. Take us away, Lucy. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.